This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast, Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson. We're live on YouTube, 7 a.m. on a Monday morning. This is what we do, Sam. Going through all the week 14 NFL action. Bright and early. Um, I lied on the preview show again. I said it was a full slate this weekend. I completely forgot that the Cardinals and Commanders were on by. More misinformation, huh? Yeah. So the last buys are out of the way. Next week, it'll be a, a full slate. And they're making us work on Saturdays. But for now... We're looking back at Sunday. We got a lot to talk about today. Yeah. So let's get into it. Where do we want to start? Let's start with the hometown Cincinnati Bengals. How about that? Okay. <laughs> wow, a mighty roar from the sound booth from Eli, the Cincinnati Bengals 34, Indianapolis Colts 14. The Cincinnati Bengals move to 7 and 6. Indianapolis Colts fall to 7 and 6. We're going to be hearing that a lot. I'm going to spend most of this show saying seven and six. I'm going to be saying seven and six, which is uh, half the AFC. Yeah, and I will uh, I will just be listing tiebreakers when it comes to uh, playoff implications here. Excellent. I'll just be giving I'll, I'll just be giving the breakdown. Perfect. Um, Sounds like a good show. So anyway, thirty-four fourteen, Bengals win. They do, and for the second week in a row, Jake Brownie looks amazing. <laughs> What's happened? He did look really good again. I mean, look, he didn't have to do nearly as much as he did on Monday night against the Jags. Like, really didn't have to throw the ball down the field. But had a big play to T. Higgins. Um, Screen game was incredible. There was a Chase Brown, the 54-yard touchdown on a screen. So um, the stats were pristine for Jake Browning. But he still, look, with with the success that Brock Purdy's having, there are some similarities with the way Jake Browning has played the last couple of weeks. Anticipation, accuracy. Browning does not have good velocity on the ball, but he's throwing the ball whatever early and accurately. Right, He threw a deep out well before the break, put it right on his receiver, just like he did on Monday night. You know, Dig route right on his receiver. Jake Browning playing with confidence and playing really efficiently again yesterday. Yeah, this one I think was different. The first game, it felt like... 
it felt like the game every coach is trying to achieve when they have a limited quarterback and they try and get him a bunch of easy, quick passes early, you know, get him in the rhythm. And then the hope is that once he settles into this comfort level of the game, then he can kind of play his own game, right, and be good, independent of, like, gimme layup play calls. This one, like, quite early, he was asked to do actual quarterbacking things, not just, hey, drop back, it's a quick hitch or a smoke route, just throw the ball, get it out of your hands, good, right? Very quickly, he's running, like, play action near his own goal line. He's under pressure. He's going to a second read. He's making you know, an extra thing happened. I think he was five or six for six at the start. And then um, there was a play, I think it was like third down. He like invites pressure, uh, sort of keeps dropping, waits, finds a tight end, converts it, gets a first down. Um, like he was, he was in the zone a lot quicker than he was the first game where it took a little bit of time. And then eventually it was like, oh, Jake Browning's actually feeling it right now, playing well. He was sort of there right away in this game. I mean, I, I just think what we've seen in the NFL the last few weeks, we'll talk about it when we talk about the Jets, but Jake Browning has played really good football the last two weeks. You know, Zach Wilson had a career day yesterday and just looked completely different. Jordan Love has... Centered. Centered, yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk about his without centering. Um, Jordan Love has been completely different the last three or four weeks, really changing. I mean, it's been actually fun to watch some of the either, uh, you know, younger starters or backups just put together these really effective games so credit Jake Browning man I mean he looks uh there was a point early in his career as I said at, at Washington where he didn't look he looked like a guy who could be an effective NFL quarterback despite not having great tools and he just never really progressed and he was crumbling under pressure by the time he got to his senior year at Washington and now after all this time I'll say this too I mean his comments on Monday Night Football where he just sounds incredibly confident and like you know he was expecting this this was his moment he's worked hard for it I, whatever whatever that means he's taking advantage of this opportunity and he's played really good ball the last couple of weeks if he's good and the next like wave of you know things to chase from college quarterbacks is the talented freshman that never really improved but played four years <laughs> that's the trend is it time to revisit and try and rescue josh rosen yes yeah yeah, because I think I think he came in with Rosen, right? I didn't look it up again. I mean, same I, class. I'm two clicks away, but I think he came in in the class of 2014, the first year that we did uh, did college grading, right? That's a long time ago. Was that 2014? His first incompletion no, in this 15. game was like a jump ball to Jamar Chase in the end zone. Really nice uh, pass breakup by Daryl Baker, but like that could have been caught for a touchdown as well. I mean, he was he played really well. Yeah, so Jake Browning, um, just like so Brock, like just like Brock Purdy's first year as a freshman, he graded at ninety, I believe, or in that range for Iowa State. Jake Browning's career grades at Washington, eighty-two point eight as a freshman, and then 77, 75, 74 point eight. Like he got worse, right? Um, but he's got the parcels, you know, had all the starts, a million games. Honestly, that might. I mean, if 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 these are just ebbs and flows, but right. everybody, where's the next Brock Purdy? Where's the next Jake Browning? You're just gonna find it's these. Oh, Nick's four-year starters guys that have all the 72 starts. starts but you know the guys with below average tools who throw with accuracy and anticipation there was a uh, throw in here um where he gets picked off which just it struck me how important ball location is right you hear all the time people harp on about it and and sometimes you're like yeah it doesn't really matter it's like a catch is a catch what difference does it make it was like a slant to tanner hudson and it was too far inside 
and Hudson can get one hand to it, and he just kind of sticks out a hand, tries to bring it in one-handed, ends up like stunning it into the air, where a Colts defender is able to just sort of yoink, grab it, take it away from him, and ends up turning it into an interception. It's like that ball is like one to two feet off target, right? It's just inside a little bit too far, and it ends up a pick six because just the the whole kind of confluence of how tight the margins are in the NFL. Like you one to two feet off, and it goes from being a catch on a routine, you know, relatively short, underneath, easy pickup to, uh uh-oh, this is not just a bad result. It's turned into a pick six because the guy has only been able to stun it into the air, and then the defender just picks it off and goes. Yeah, I also think the end result of that being a pick six was kind of unlucky. That's usually just a yeah, of course, just a but, miss. But like that's know? the like that's the risk, right? Is that's how fine the margins are in the NFL. If you're going to be one or two feet off in terms of actual accuracy, it can be anything from the guy somehow still pe- catches it, right? Like that one-handed stun of the ball could have actually stuck, and you end up like if he catches that, nobody even notices. It's just like, ah, that was slightly off, and then on to the next play, and nobody even, it doesn't register. But the other end of the spectrum in terms of luck is him trying to catch it ends up just batting the ball up just enough for a guy to pick it off. And that's all because of the difference in that in ball location. Uh, shout out to Bengals center Ted Karras. A couple big blocks on both of the screen passes for running back Chase Brown. And, of course, shout out to Chase Brown, who's become a bit of a playmaker the last couple weeks for the Bengals three catches for 80 yards including that 54 yard screen had another 25 yard gain on a screen again where Ted Karras was out there leading the charge in front and I think the Bengals you know may have missed Samaje Pirine as the number two running back earlier in this year and Chase Brown stepping up the rookie out of Illinois um, pretty big these last couple weeks adding some big plays for the Bengals on the other side. He's Colts. a true change of pace. Like yeah. he's another one of these backs where, again, just the difference between him and Joe Mixon in terms of like quickness, speed, intensity, you know, it, it is a very different type of back to be trying to bring down when he steps on the field. On the other side, Colts had that pick six, only scored seven points offensively and, you know, never just never got anything going on the ground. They'd had been uh, running the ball pretty well this season didn't couldn't get that going and um Bengals defense had their best game in quite a while so they're all they're both seven and six tied with the Pittsburgh Steelers the Houston Texans the Denver Broncos and the Buffalo Bills now to go with the Bengals and the Colts here at seven and six Browning also got hurt and AJ McCarron had to come in down to the third string yeah what's that look like going forward well, hopefully he's not hurt, hurt, and it was just. What's that? A thumb cramp. A thumb cramp? What the hell is that? I don't know if that's real or not, but yeah, we'll see what happens. So uh, Bengals move to seven and six. Colts fall mm. to seven and six. We didn't really mention anything about the Colts in this game, um, but maybe Colts fans like it that way. Yeah, maybe they think? want to forget it. I mean, it really comes down to they weren't as good as the Bengals. <laughs> I don't have much to add for the Colts. They didn't play a great Minshew game. Minshew didn't play as good as Jake Browning, and I, you know, nobody else played particularly well either. It was a nice touchdown to Mo yeah. Ali Cox, you know, hard play action down with the end zone, but ultimately they weren't good enough. Good job. Thanks. 
But as a parent, you've had to learn so many new skills to provide for your family, how to do copious amounts of laundry, meal plan for even the pickiest eater, and now how to protect your family's financial future. Fabric by Gerber Life provides an easy one-stop shop for your family's financial needs, offering high-quality term life insurance policies plus other financial solutions in one easy online hub. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in just minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You can go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash pffnfl. That's meetfabric.com slash pffnfl. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash pffnfl. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, let's get... uh, Get this New Orleans game out of the way here, too. Saints 28, Panthers 6. I mean, let's bring the energy for the Saints-Panthers game. Mm. Saints move to 6-7, and seven, and the Panthers fall to 1-12. Game started uh, pretty ugly for both sides. Derek Carrs, uh, he salvaged his stats a little bit with a couple late touchdown passes. Still only averaged 4.6 yards per attempt, which led the game among quarterbacks 4.6 yards per attempt because Bryce Young for Carolina finishes 13 for 36 for 137 yards that's 3.8 yards per attempt and they had 99 net passing yards because he was sacked four times for negative 38 Mm. and the Panthers also ran for 204 including Bryce Young with 40 yards scrambling yeah thoughts on this game uh the, well, firing Frank Reich didn't fix it. Did not. It's still bad. My, my immediate takeaway on this one is we've made a lot of excuses for Bryce Young over the weeks. Not excuses, but we just, we've described the situation. Yeah. Right? The receivers aren't great. They're not getting open. The pass protection's terrible. Um, in this one, he left some plays on the table. He had your guy Jonathan Mingo open down the field. He Big missed miss. several downfield passes. He did. So it the play that... Um, it was like a fumble, right? They didn't. It wasn't an interception. They called it the play where he was sort of buried in the pocket, fumbled the ball away. Um, that play, I think, sums up the Panthers this year. Uh, you look at the play, and it was one of those. Remember years ago when the Vikings had uh, Norv Turner as the offense coordinator, and, and everything they ran in a league that was like quick passing, quick game, short drops, everyone out five wide, all that kind of stuff. Whereas they were running like everything was seven step drops with two wide receivers in the pattern. You know, max protect because the offensive line is bad. Uh, only that doesn't actually work anymore because max protect just cre- – anyway. So that was what it was running, and it, it didn't work. And you're like, is this actually the quarterback's problem or is this the offense being stuck in the dark ages? So this play it was like straight out of that season. They run max protect. They've got two tight ends and a running back, all of whom stay in to help block, right? Which means there's only two wide receivers out in pass patterns, and they're both running deep on first and ten. So – and that would be okay if the Max Protect actually did its job. But it didn't because immediately uh, Iki Aquano at left tackle gets whooped. So one second into the play, like he's literally just given the ball fake for play action, turns around, and the left tackle is like lying on his face as the defensive end is bearing down upon him. So Young immediately has to make a guy miss. Does that actually reason me well. But now there's three separate Saints bearing down on him. Like the entire defense is now running, closing in on him with two wide receivers running downfield 
neither of whom have had a chance to even get open yet. And he's like, there's, there's no hope at this point, right? The best he can do is just throw the ball and take intentional grounding or just get rid of it somehow, right? And instead, he ends up holding it just a tick too long, and it's a fumble, and he's buried, and it's, ah, uh, like... So the play was terrible. It was executed awfully, and then Bryce Young somehow made it worse. That's the, se- that's the season for the Carolina Panthers this year. Yeah, everything was bad. Yeah, Bryce Young made it worse by trying to double clutch, still try to throw it under heavy pressure. That shouldn't have been there because it should have been picked up. It was ugly. It's like, you know, there's a degree to which they say, you know, young quarterbacks, one of the things you've got to learn is when to just cut bait and take a small loss, right? Don't, make, don't turn a small loss into a big loss right. when it's the only thing available to you. Just eat the play when it's there. Like, the only thing, honestly, his best option in this play might have been to just take a sack right away. Um, the problem is... That's bad, right? That's when that's the, the the optimal outcome for your Panthers offense is to just take a sack. The things are bad. That turnover led to the first Saints touchdown, so they get up seven nothing. Panthers come back with a field goal, and as I said, I thought so. Bryce Young's numbers, by the way, he finishes on on passes ten plus yards down the field. He finishes four for seventeen for eighty three yards. He started off one of eight, just generally overall, right? I mean, finished. 13 for 36, like all the, he was three for 15 at one point. If you look at all the not so superlatives along the way, it was ugly. Not so superlatives. Um, yes. Um, so he wasn't connecting down the field. There were opportunities in this game, more than usual, and Bryce Young was missing them. Um, and then the Saints block a punt, yeah, draft model, on that? Uh, draft model linebacker DeMarco Jackson. I don't think that the, the model was what created the, the giant gap of the middle, though. Doesn't matter. DeMarco induced it. Um, so that led to the second Saints touchdown because the Saints, I mean, yeah, Derek Carr was screaming with uh, at Eric McCoy as center. Derek Carr, you know, fighting his teammates again mm. this whole game. So it wasn't like things started great for the Saints offense. They had a short field for the first score and then a punt for a touchdown. And then the spark for the Saints offense in 2023 is Jimmy Graham. Yeah. Jimmy Graham. He's got a great catch in traffic that led to, you know, it was the fourth quarter, fourth quarter touchdown on the, the RPO to Chris Olave on a slant for seven yards, and then Jimmy Graham has a four-yard touchdown of his own. He's the red zone spark. The Saints can actually score in the red zone now, and it, uh, it's all coincided with Jimmy Graham catching footballs I think, in was 2023. This, yeah. This was his first catch, I think, that wasn't also a touchdown. I think previously all of his catches yeah. had been touchdowns. They're like he's basically turned into Mike Vrabel at this point. <laughs> they just wheel him out there on the goal line and be like, hey, go win a jump ball. See, that's where his previous teams, it was the Bears for a little bit, right? Yeah. Bears and the Seahawks. Because he started you know, lose a step or two or But somehow that seven. didn't work. Like, didn't Seattle try and do that at one point? They're like, hey, apparently Jimmy Graham isn't Jimmy Graham anymore, but at least he's still like a, you know, a great basketball red zone threat. And then it, it wasn't didn't work great right anyway yeah I mean it wasn't wasn't the cleanest game for the Saints offense either but um put some points on the board late another play that that really was emblematic of this Panthers offense Bryce Young finally makes like a good throw on fourth down and then DJ Chark I don't think he dropped it but it was one of those ones where like weak at the catch point don't come down with it you know type of play and it's like what do you there's there's a variety of different 
technical classifications that can have from drop ball to pass breakup to close coverage to whatever, right? But it's one of those plays where a good wide receiver comes down with it. And DJ Chark is like fresh off bitching about how everybody's blaming the Panthers receivers. He's like, yeah, it's not, you know, everyone's saying it's all us, but it really isn't. You're like, well, that one was. Fourth down, wide receiver, your quarterback, your rookie quarterback who's dying down there, like drowning here, finally makes a good play and you don't come up with it the week after you were complaining about how everyone's blaming the wide receivers. Like, again, just poor the Panthers. Man, that offense stinks. It's ugly. It's very ugly. A um, couple more stats and we'll get out of here with this game, not the show. Yeah. Panthers averaged 5.2 yards on the ground per attempt, including the scrambles, so cheating a little bit. So say 5.2 yards per attempt rushing, 2.5 yards per drop back. Now you could say you know, 40 yards came on scrambles or whatever, but either way, it was like, it was bad. Mm. It was a bad passing attack from Carolina. And uh, shout out to rookie Saint Brian Percy, one of the best, probably the best pass rushing game of his career. Uh, one quick, you know, it's against the Panthers. Teams tend to have their best pass rushing performances against the Panthers. Um, but Percy, six, seven pressures. I don't know what he'll end up with, but he had a he had a good game, creating disruption. Yeah. Uh, shout out as well to Derek Brown, one of the few players for the Panthers that actually did have a great game. Had one of those batted pass interception things. Stuck his mitts up batted into the air, and then, oh, look, it's dropped right in my hands. Awesome. It was a great play. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I got no more use for this game. No, ugly game. Panthers still stink. Next. <laughs> to the next NFC South game, Tampa Bay Bucks 29, Atlanta Falcons 25. A lot of excitement in this game. It was back and forth. Uh, Bucks moved to 6-7 and seven and now have the tiebreaker in the NFC South. So they're technically in first place. Yeah, but the entire division except Carolina is at six yeah. and seven. And the Falcons fall to six and seven. Um, there was a complete flip in the four five seeds in the NFC. So coming into the day, if the playoffs had started today, yesterday, the uh, Falcons were going to host the Cowboys in a four five. Okay. But now it would be the Bucks hosting the Eagles in a four five matchup. So the Bucs are now leading the NFC South, and the Eagles have fallen to the five seed in the NFC. So Baker Mayfield hits Cade Otten for the game-winning touchdown with under a minute left in the fourth quarter. 11-yard touchdown to go up 29-25. to A lot of ebbs and flows in this one. Baker's now clutch. He went yeah. from, like, his entire career, even when he was playing well, when you got, you know, within two minutes late in the game needing a drive, you're like, oh, Baker's going to find a way of making a mess of this. Now... That's when he's at his best. Baker yeah. money. Including the Texans game earlier this year where C.J. Stroud just <laughs> outclutched him. But yeah. Like Baker Mayfield's led a few of these, uh, these late game drives. Right. He's gone from literally like my default assumption is he's going to find a way of making a mess out of this to actually now it looks like he gets it done. So this was another one. I, was kinda, I, I left a note during the game. I was like, um, we're in the middle of the third quarter and Baker Mayfield has not hit a pass beyond 10 yards. And I, wrote, I said, keep an eye on it. Let, you know, check the final stats. He did not complete a pass beyond 10 air yards until third and 10 on that final drive, game on the line, throws an absolute dime to Chris Godwin mm. to convert. Then he had that pass. Um, previously, he'd had that pass to uh, Mike Evans, kind of rolled out, hit Mike Evans on the side of the end zone. Evans, it was one of those, like, the ball location's great. Evans just didn't have his, you know, feet aligned, his hand hit out, out of bounds just before his got his second foot down, so it was incomplete, but it was actually a really good throw. And then Mayfield hits the Kate Otten 
game-winning touchdown as well, which is 18 air yards technically, 11 yards total. But, you know, those are the only two passes that he threw beyond 10 yards that were completed, and they were, you know, in crunch time when they needed him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, this was incredible back-and-forth game. I mean, Desmond Ritter, it looked like he was going to be the hero for a while because, you know, the Bucks took the lead, and then Ritter comes back, and he's he has a touchdown run on a QB keeper where I don't even know if he made the right read. He just outran Joe Tryon Shoyinka to the to the end zone, to the to the sideline and then to the end zone. Um, incredible play by Ritter. Uh, there were plays – there was also um, incredible interception early by Carlton Davis to set up uh, an early score by the Bucks. Antoine Winfield had a great play and a strip sack for a safety. Like, there were a lot of um, game-changing plays. Bucks came back with a 30-yard screen touchdown to Rashad White like they did a few weeks back on third and nine. Um, just the Bucks ended up, though – making the high leverage plays third and 10 to Godwin third and nine screen to Rashad White and that ended up being the difference in the game yep that was so there were a few differences in the game that was one of them um Ritter was one of them like Ritter is one of these quarterbacks now he's maybe the archetype of this who's quite good in between horrendous mistakes right and it's like so the overall net of that is bad but the actual level of his play on like the modal level of his play is quite good. And then you're only ever sort of five, 10 plays away from like a disaster. That's like, come on, you just stop doing that. And some of them are so bad, like so obviously bad. Just don't do that and you're okay. Um, like the safety was a bad play by him. The, he's just so many of these punctuating his play. But other than that, he's not terrible. It must be incredibly frustrating from a coaching point of view. But the difference between him and Baker was those bad plays. Um, there were a couple of officiating calls late in this game that both bounced Tampa Bay's way instead of uh, the, the Falcons. Um, Clark Phillips, the rookie slot corner, had a, an amazing game. Like He played incredibly well, had a couple of pass breakups in there, and then gets called on this really ticky-tacky holding call on that Bucks drive to go ahead. And like, that was pretty brutal. And then Rashad White fumbles the ball away, and somehow that doesn't count either. Did he rec- – no, he didn't recover it, right? The Falcons. I think they, didn't they say he was down? Either way, it didn't, yeah, they, didn't cost them. They didn't, yeah, Rashad White fumbled and may have recovered it himself, but at the sa- I think the Falcons ended up with the ball. Let me go see what the game book says. At the bottom of the pile. Um, yeah, I wrote that down as well. The, that was on um, – was that on – yeah, it was on fourth and one. It was a fumble and an unclear recovery unclear as well. Recovery. That's what I mean. That's just what I wrote down in my notes. Yeah, on fourth and one, but I don't know what the exact call was on that. Um, there was also back-to-back plays. Again, this was I yeah. It count. said he recovers. It said he recovered, yeah. but I there was a chance that the Falcons came away with that at the bottom of the pile. So yeah, the Bucks were up twelve ten. They got up nineteen to ten. And then in the fourth quarter, the way that the Falcons came back, they hit a tap pass to Bijan Robinson for a big play. They get up to the line of scrimmage. Bijan runs a he has a three yard touchdown run in which the Bucks had nine players on defense. How do you have nine guys? Which I guess they had only ten players on defense a couple weeks ago. This yeah. seems to be a common trend for the Bucks playing, you know, just up in the difficulty level mm-hmm. a little bit. Um Bucks get up 22 to 17. 10, I get it. Like 10, you can understand, right? It just means one guy screwed up somewhere, right? Whatever. There's well, something the, wrong with his helmet. The 10th, 
the 11th guy never made it on the field. Nine, that means two different people had to get have problems or screw up at the same time and it not be relayed. How does that happen? The funny thing is there's a strategy that I, I don't know if you're allowed to say the name of this anymore. Okay. There's a strategy to put at certain times of the game, like, 13 guys out on defense in the goal line mm. to make the stop, to make the clock run, like it was an old strategy, right? right? The Bucks are going the opposite way. Like, let's see if we can stop it with nine. Yeah. Let's, I don't think that's going to be as effective. Um, so, yeah, and then it looked, you know, so the Bucks get up 22 to 17 with a field goal, and then Ritter has that, um, has that keeper for a six-yard touchdown to go up 25-22 after they get the two-point conversion. And, the, you know, so... So the Falcons had the division. They had a chance to go up two games in the division if they could stop the box. But no, Baker Mayfield drives them down 12 plays, 75 yards, as I said, highlighted by a third and 10 absolute dime to Chris Godwin and then another dime on the 11-yard touchdown to Kate Otten. So 29-25. Bucks get the win. They So, yeah, they Baker's comeback, great win, et cetera. They, when they scored, there's still 31 seconds left on the clock, and it's like, yeah, it's Desmond Ritter. I mean, yeah. They actually got there. Like, Drake London had an insane game overall in terms of just that guy might be the best receiver in the league at the catch point. Like, that was his super skill coming out of the draft. When the ball is in the air, that guy tracks it and goes to get it better than any receiver I can think of and any receiver I can think of coming into the NFL for a long time. And he made a few of those plays in this game. And their final, so they get into range. I mean, their final play is from the Tampa Bay 31-yard line, right? Yep. So that's, I mean, we can, we can get it to the end zone there pretty comfortably. And London goes up over the middle over a bunch of Bucks defenders, catches the ball, but the ball's like three yards short of the, the goal line. Like, if, they, if that's in the end zone, the Falcons might have won the game. It. And that's where, look, if you're if you're drawing it up on paper and you everything that we cited about the Falcons playmakers coming into the season, Drake London ended up with ten catches for one seventy two, including that one that was short of the end zone. But London had a big game, did have a drop in there that was key. But Kyle Pitts broke free for a thirty six yard touchdown. He had fifty seven yards. Bijan had five catches for fifty four yards. Like this is what they should do if you're the Falcons. They got their playmakers involved, but. Um, Run game was inconsistent for the Falcons, um, even without Vita Vea playing for the Bucs. Their linebackers played really well, Tampa Bay, with Levante David back. But yeah, the Falcons got, but they still still couldn't put it all together, man. Defense let them down, I think, at the end. And they slowed down Mike Evans, too. Evans had only one catch for eight yards. Again, he had that pass that he could have caught mm-hmm. for a touchdown. It feels like a missed opportunity for the Falcons, and the Bucs really taking advantage down the stretch there. Because Mayfield was not having a good game. Again, wasn't connecting on anything down the field until until crunch time. Anything else? No, I mean, I thought Rashad White had a really good game other than that fumble. Um, like the fumble, it was unfortunate because he'd been having a really good game up until that point. It didn't end up costing them, so I guess it works out in the end. But Rashad White, I thought, had a great game. Drake London had a great game. Clark Phillips had a great game, despite that weird ticky-tanky call that I don't think was really holding. Um so those were the players that stood out, I think. So the top of the NFC South is everybody six and seven. Bucks leading the division with the tiebreakers at the moment. And then the Falcons and Saints at the 10 and 11 seeds in the NFC at six and seven. Do we need to bring Steve Kornacki on here? Yeah, we need Kornacki. You got it covered. 
I was thinking we have a should they just make Parker the screen well. higher so he doesn't like he's, he's got to have back uh, issues. We could wheel Parker out here and he could just while we're doing the show. Like we don't even need to cut to him. He could just be doing the whole thing like in the background. I mean, we do all the way through. We do power his his segments on Football Night in America. Yeah, so it's really like a natural. I mean, we've got the TV thing right over there. We could I mean, now look. And it, then it wouldn't matter that Parker doesn't really work, you know, and it would take four or five stabs to make Nobody the thing knows who Parker function. is. Parker's the giant useless TV we have over there. <laughs> the big giant useless TV. Yeah. That was uh, an impulse purchase after a Reds game in an afternoon. Yeah, and became obsolete after about three minutes. <laughs> I don't even think we know the password to get into it anymore, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, that's great. Anyway, <laughs> uh, how about that NFC South? All right, let's go. Um, we'll talk prize picks after this game. Chicago Bears 28, Detroit Lions 13. Bears move to 5-8. and eight. Lions move to 9-4. and four. A lot of similarities to the last time that they played with the Bears controlling most of the game. Um, it was back and forth early, though. The Bears got up. The Lions came back. And I say this every week, you know, when the underdog handles when they when they handle the comeback from the from the favorite you know that's when things get tense but then you know the bears go into the fourth quarter with a two score lead and you're still thinking we see we've seen this before you know the lions were down two scores with like five minutes left the last time they played and they still pulled it off but not this time bears cracked down win at 28 to 13 second time they've made jared goff look not so good goff is in the middle of a slump multi-week slump mm. Um, Justin Fields looked pretty good on his side of the ball. And, yeah, the Bears looking good, man. Yeah, if if Justin Fields only had to play the Lions, you know, there would be no question about whether he was the, the future or the, the franchise quarterback. He'd be like an all-pro already. Um, they can't defend him. I mean, they couldn't deal with him early. It's helped also. It feels like the Bears only bring out the good plays against the Lions, right? Like they had that. Uh, DJ Moore sort of trick run where he lines up as the quarterback and then was it Fields in motion from the slot? Yeah, great play. Yeah, they really was. The end around. Right, two fields. fields and right. then Moore just keeps it and goes back to where Fields came from and it's like a wide open run for, for a touchdown. It's like that's that's a great play with the threat that Fields is as a runner um, and it completely flummoxed the Lions defense. But it's like where is that for the majority of this this team? It seems to only come out against the Lions. Um, and then late later in the game, they run this like uh, TE stunt on one side of the the defensive line from the Lions. So the the tackle goes first, the end comes in, loops around. I saw some people criticizing Aiden Hutchinson for like jumping inside and giving up contain. Saw the same. But like the tackle is supposed to be out there. He just never makes it anywhere near it. So as soon as Hutchinson loops back inside, there is now no edge. There is no yeah. contain. And Fields just goes, oh, okay, yoink runs right into the space, just wanders out for a touchdown. It's like, this is basic stuff. <laughs> like, what are we doing? Um, you see that more in today's NFL than ever, which is because there's so many mobile quarterbacks and guys who like to get out of the pocket and make plays, you see this a lot with teams playing Mahomes. It's, it's good to stunt to just mix it up a little bit, right? Because sometimes you're trying to, like, bait the quarterback, and it's like, hey, you look, it looked like the edge was open, but, hey, there's somebody there. The challenge is when you run that stunt and you put a 300-pounder yeah. now as the contained player this is the against an athletic quarterback, it's a challenge. And then you have you know the offensive lines trying to block you, and if they just get your hands on you, 
before you get to the edge. Yeah, that's what happened in this game uh, on this play. Fields with the eleven yard touchdown screen. When you when you see the numbers and the production sometimes of plays with stunts, and when you see stunts work well, you tend to ask yourself like, why do you, why is any team running like not a lot of stunts? Why wouldn't every team run more of them? So like the play action numbers, you know, where it's like everything says run more play action. Well, everything says run more stunts, and you're like, what is the downside here? Well, this play was the downside, right? The the exchanging gaps can be a two-edged sword. On the like, it makes it more difficult for offensive linemen to pick up the two guys that are rushing and exchanging their gap. But the downside is, if one guy doesn't get back into the other gap, now you've blown a gap, and there's a giant space for an athletic quarterback to be able to run into and be completely free into the second level. Uh, late in the third quarter. It was 19-13 Chicago. So before that, might, I don't know if it led right to that touchdown, but 19-13 Chicago and Jared Goff just drops a snap mm-hmm. in his own territory. No idea. Bears recover. Three total turnover-worthy plays for Goff, that one on the, on the snap. I mean, Goff just has not played well against the Bears. The one other thing here, too, with the Lions, I didn't get there. They were one of five on fourth down, failed on a fourth and one in their own territory. Mm. Um and in, in, so they've won games this year, the Chargers game in particular, where it was like fourth and six, we're just going to run it first down. And they down, keep going cares? for the crazy ones. Like they yeah. went for fourth and ten in this game <laughs> through an interception. Yeah, and the, I mean the interception's fine at that point. I mean, you know what I mean? Like you'd rather convert, but at yeah. that point, I mean, you're, the, the interception and incompletions. You're the same giving thing. them the ball anyway. You know, you might as well take a shot at it. Yeah. That's uh, my point here is, when when fourth downs work, obviously they're going to go, going to increase win probability. Yeah. When they don't work, they're going to decrease win probability way more than usual. So sometimes, if you're that aggressive, you get these volatile games. When variance doesn't go your way, it's going to look ugly. And that was what happened with the Lions here. It's also a little bit. I haven't looked at all the ones in this game, but remember a few years when Brandon Staley first rocked up and was going for every fourth down, and everyone was like, "Oh, this is crazy! Like this is this is why analytics is terrible." And you're like, he's not even going with the analytics. Like, he's way more aggressive than the analytics say. All of the go for it, no go for it stuff was saying, don't go for half of these. And Brandon Staley was going for all of them. And it's like, he, this is what Dan Campbell has been doing this year. He has not necessarily been sticking to what the analytics says. They've been way more aggressive. And was it, was it against the Chargers a few weeks ago where he went for a bunch of these? And they all, like the net was a massive win for Detroit, right? They, they failed on one down by the goal line, and so they didn't end up getting any points out of it. But, like, they went for a bunch of them. And the net outcome of those, I think they went for five or six times or something in the game, they were way ahead. But they were way more aggressive than the analytics say. And they ended up getting paid out off for it because they converted so many of them. Well, if you're going to be way more aggressive and not convert, now you're going to start catching – like a massive end of negative from this. Um, and then they kind of failed twice, right? Like they, the start of the game was this, uh-oh, we've seen this script again. We can't stop Justin Fields and we're in a hole. But then they had that play just before the half where they had like an 11-play drive, chewed up some clock, um, took the ball or took the, the clock down to the wire and then scored a touchdown to take the lead for the first time. And it's like if you were – you know, this season for Detroit, a little bit like Jacksonville. It's like, are you actually for real or are you just in and around the fringes of playoff contention and, you know, ultimately you're the same team as you were a year ago? 
if you were this true contender that the Lions want to be this season, that would have been a moment to kind of relax, breathe, reset, and like start again, right? We came into this game. We were expected to win. We got punched in the mouth. We were in a hole. We dug our way out of it. And hey, look, we've got to halftime. We're up. Like everything that happened in the first half doesn't really matter. We're where we should be. We are winning this game despite it being a bad first half. And instead, they just sort of let the th- same thing happen again. It's like that's that doesn't speak tremendously well to you know championship aspirations. That's what I was kind of trying to say. The, the, you described it like as they got punched in the mouth, and then you handle, you come back, and you take the lead. Now here's the other key play. Third and 13, late third quarter, Justin Fields is getting sacked. He throws the ball away. I'm the, uh, I'm the intentional grounding police. Oh. He's trying to throw the ball away. He throws it off of Darnell Wright's ankle. Darnell Wright's the right tackle. Yes. He's not an eligible receiver. And uh, Dan Campbell and the Lions were furious that this was not called intentional grounding. So I'm, uh, I'm generally empathetic to the quarterback who's getting hit. And because he's getting hit, he's unable to get the ball anywhere near a receiver. Because, you know, we, we grade plays and we look at this and we're like, well, that's not an inaccurate pass. He got popped. Of course you can't make an inaccurate pass when you're getting hit. But this is one where Field starts getting hit. He's on his way down. There is a tight end in the flat. And he kind of, you know, tries to get rid of it. Doesn't get anywhere near the receiver. Lions were furious. This would have made it fourth in a million, and they probably would have just punted or whatever. So they don't call it. They just call it a throwaway. Um, I mean, it's nowhere near the receiver, but it's like he's throwing it in that direction, but he's getting hit. Next play is fourth and 13. DJ Moore runs behind the defense. On fourth and 13, was it Jerry Jacobs? Just runs right by him for a 32-yard touchdown. And that ended up being, I mean, that's the game winner. That ended up being the difference in the game. So th- those two plays were absolutely massive as well. Credit the Bears, though. I mean, they, they made the play when they needed. But fourth and 13, that is egregious defense. And if there's a concern for the Lions, I mean, there's two big concerns. Jared Goff putting the ball in harm's way over and over again and just not playing as crisp and clean as he had the first 10 or 12 weeks of the season, 10 weeks of the season, say. And then the defense, the inconsistency, rushing the passer, inconsistency on the back end after all their injuries and um, all that stuff I think showed up from a Lions perspective here and they got them the jump on that play as well like it was a free play like fourth and 13 yeah like that was not only was it a terrible like you let the guy wander behind a defense on fourth and 13 for a touchdown bad like in isolation then you add on top of that and it was a free play because you jumped off sides it's like the worst possible defensive play um, so Bears win a couple in a row here. They're also in this interesting spot because, again, like when Justin Fields is not playing like he did the first two or three weeks of the year where he's playing, you know, with scrambling as an option, with some designed runs as an option, he's playing all right. I and mean, if it wasn't for the Panthers, Justin Fields would be putting the Bears in a very awkward situation where, hey – we kind of want to move away from you because you've shown enough bad at this point that Caleb or Caleb Williams or Drake May is probably a better an option. But if they had just their own pick, they probably don't have a shot at the, either of those guys anymore. Yeah, and that's they're now I'm, five and eight. And so I think I think they're absolutely going to move on from Fields, right? Yeah. And so this is going to be even more for the Bears' offseason, which we'll have plenty to talk about this offseason. Not only having the number one overall pick, 
having their pick, which seems to be getting worse now every week because mm-hmm. they're they're winning. But then whatever they can get for Fields, and down to number seven. Yeah, that's that's harsh. So whatever they can get for Fields too, the assets that the Bears have accumulated the last couple of years between trading down from number one, from having Fields and people around like there's going to be ten teams around the league who probably want to you know have a Justin Fields. Um, so there'll be plenty to talk about there. And Fields playing well is just another win for the Bears, even if it's hurting their draft position. I don't think it's a huge deal. Yeah, like I said, the well, the because day. they've got Carolinas, it doesn't really matter. But right. if it wasn't for that, it would be putting them in a real bind. All right, let's talk about our prize picks lineup for tonight. We have a doubleheader on Monday Night Football. Um, the surprise December doubleheader by the NFL. And we're going to go <clears throat> more than 228.5 passing yards for Jordan Love. Love's hot right now. Tearing it up. So we're going more than 228.5. And, and then we got a little combo. DeAndre Hopkins and Jaden Reed. Because the Titans are playing, the Packers are playing, not each other. They're going to go more than a half touchdown, rushing or receiving. All right, so add them up, more than a half. I'm feeling good about this one. Yeah. And then Saquon Barkley, we're going more than 93 and a half rushing and receiving yards. We also have to give the autopsy of the last prize picks lineup from Eli. I like to not look back. It was a the, the three-person shot, and two of the three hit. And they were the least likely of the two. TJ Hawkinson went went more than his 52.5. Adam Thielen went more than his 55.5, despite Carolina not getting anything going on offense. And then Nico Collins, who was the only wide receiver left standing for the Houston Texans, gets hurt in the first quarter and doesn't go more. And that's, uh, that's how Eli's price picks lineup crapped out. Now, they do have an injury reboot policy that would have saved him. And he points out this morning that had he done it as a flex play, he would have got two of the three correct and made more money back. So that's a great... So you can do that. It's a great perk by Prize Picks, the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance, insurance policy. So we got that for Nico Collins. So if Nico Collins leaves in the first half and doesn't come back for the second, which is what happened, he would have been rebooted. The other things prize picks have with basketball season here, you can now pick combo projections across football and basketball from the Specials League. It's a league created specifically for combo projections that includes two or more players from different sports or leagues. For example, you can go LeBron James plus Travis Kelsey, a 10.5 combo of three-pointers made plus receptions. You can also play alongside some of prize picks' favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz. You can find them in the community plays under the promos tab of the app to view entries from some of the biggest names in the prize picks community each week. And then you discussed that reboot policy and how important that is as a part of your prize picks lineup. So you can go to prizepicks.com slash PFFNFL, use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's prizepicks.com slash PFFNFL, use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. All right, where are we going next here? Let's go Cleveland Browns 31, Jacksonville Jaguars 27. Browns move to eight and five. Jags fall to eight and five. Uh, Trevor Lawrence did end up playing despite the ankle injury. Mm. Throws the ball fifty times. They didn't take anything off his plate. No. This was another uh, you know hectic game as far as game flow goes. The Browns got up fourteen nothing, and again every time the Jags kept trying to come back, Cleveland did a really good job for much of the game. They were up at least a touchdown or two. Jags did have opportunities to come back in the fourth quarter, but. Joe Flacco and the Browns making big plays when it mattered. Joe Flacco and the Browns. This was a turnover fest, this game. 
it really um, was. Trevor Lawrence throwing interceptions and the Browns fumbling the ball was generally how this game was going back and forth. Um, just what, so you asked before, you know, did, was there any obvious evidence of Trevor Lawrence being injured? Like if we reach this point now where NFL players are just superhuman freak shows, like a high ankle sprain used to be you're done for a month. Yeah. And then you're back and you're still not 100%. Now he was six days. And he's, yes. he's out there and he doesn't, there's no visible evidence that he was injured. Now, did you get in the boo boo breakdown? Did you get any comparisons? I listened to it, but I can't remember. Um, any comparisons to Mahomes' injury? No, we didn't, we didn't talk about that too much, but we mentioned it uh, off air on Friday. Like, he's going to look like Mahomes in the playoffs, only it's going to be bad, right? Like, Mahomes somehow couldn't move, was like literally couldn't hobble around the place, but went out there, played the game, and still somehow didn't play any worse it was insane um i was like this is going to put into like contrast how well he did in that playoff performance it kind of did but like lawrence didn't look like that he could actually move around fine and if you didn't know he was injured you wouldn't have said you wouldn't have seen it from the tape like you wouldn't look at him and go oh, that's a guy that's visibly hobbled he can't move around but there were some throws in there i think that i think can I don't want to say can only be explained by an injury, but make more sense as an explanation of an injury. Like the first weird heave of an interception where he missed um, Zay Jones by like seven yards over his head. Like he's got, he's not under pressure. He's got open space. He steps into it. You're like that throw, a guy like Lawrence doesn't miss by that degree if there's not a reason for it. Like that was, he was just way off. So I think where his injury showed up was on plays like that, where you're like, you know, it just jacks the mechanics of what he's doing. Foot goes into the turf. Right. It's different. It's not the same strength. Consequently, he's like an order of magnitude further off than he would normally be on that throw. And that is where, if you rewatched Mahomes playing, Mahomes did not have mobility. So he came back in the Jags game after looking like he couldn't walk. Yeah and then played the next week against the Bengals in the AFC Championship, limited mobility, and he kind of got re-injured in that game. So he wasn't moving around that well. But every now and again, he'd step into a throw, and things would just kind of like, oh, he bounced a throw. Like, he just missed some throws, which looked like it was probably the ankle. But, like, Lawrence, when he was moving around, six days later, after he could barely put any weight on the thing, and he was, like, maneuvering the pocket and running around. Like, you didn't yeah. see any – I didn't see any mobility issues – but maybe it just showed up on a couple throws where they became, you know, errant throws that he's missing, you know? Yeah. I mean, he was scrambling around. Like, he didn't – it didn't look like a guy that was hobbled. But there were a couple of throws in there where, I, again, I don't think it makes much sense for that throw unless, you know, something is messed with his his mechanics or his – just the his whole sort of biomechanical, you know, throwing me mechanism. So just a couple things to highlight here. If you were watching the game, you saw a lot of Martin Emerson from the from the Browns. Well, that's because Lawrence kept throwing the ball to him. Lawrence kept throwing the ball to him. Emerson breaking up passes, had a defensive stop. He had a huge game. Um, the other thing that was different, you have uh, Blake Nance playing left tackle for the Jags. Um, he's normally a guard. I mean, it was just this makeshift offensive line that Jacksonville had. When Hance came in, he had 41 pass-blocking snaps, and he will have – Yikes. Maybe 10 or so pressures allowed. Um, a lot in the fourth quarter. It was, you know, after the game may have been out of hand, but 
across the board, the offensive line for the Jags was not good. That would be one other difference. It felt like when, remember when Mahomes did get hurt last year in the Jags game and the offensive line was like, we will not right. let anyone near our quarterback. The guy can't even walk. And, and it was some of the most pristine pockets I've ever seen. Like the Tooney and Creed Humphrey and those dudes cracked down. The Jags did not in this one. And it's tough against this Browns pass rush. So they were, they were getting heat on Trevor Lawrence for a lot of the game. And, um, again, the Browns defense just stepping up, making life difficult. I know they gave up points, but they made a lot of big-time plays in this one, Browns defense. I was bummed that – so we, we got some – you know, sometimes you, you get pieces of evidence where you're like, I would really like to see this happen. And, it, you know, teams, for whatever reason, have decided a guy plays a different position or doesn't have this role. You're like, I'd just love to see this happen. Ezra Cleveland was one of these like prototypical college left tackles where you're like that guy is pretty lightweight and you know is more of a finesse type of blocker and then the vikings draft him and move him inside to guard you're like that's the last player i would move into guard a lightweight finesse left tackle moves inside where you have to deal with bigger stronger players i was always curious what would happen if ezra cleveland actually played left tackle um well because of the injuries the Jags were playing him at left tackle, and then he goes down, and they've got to start or bring out Blake Hans. And it's like, Ugh. he last, yeah, Ezra Cleveland last just 27 snaps at left tackle. Yeah, and they weren't great, but I would have liked to have seen, sure. even if it was only one game, a full game of Ezra Cleveland playing left tackle. So the Jags have gone through Cam Robinson, Walker Little, Ezra Cleveland, down, now down to Blake Nance. Yeah. And, you know, let's remember that the assignment there is Miles Garrett. It was, and it's Miles Garrett who looked closer to being Miles Garrett than he's been the last couple of weeks since that shoulder injury. Poor Blake Nance. I mean, some of the plays where Miles Garrett is, he's bending like a 220 pounder with speed and power, and it's just, just contorting his body in ways that shouldn't exist. But he had a, he had a sack on the two point conversion as well. The controversy, of course, because the Browns were favored by three and a half, Sam. And the Jags went for two, down four at the end of the game there he got double teamed in that play and still made the, yeah. the sack on on the foot like that was crazy which when you're putting up when they put up the resumes that's the a defensive de yeah. player of the year the sack on the two-point conversion which was pretty clutch doesn't count there not just pretty clutch that's like if that happens on a key fourth down somewhere in the game that's like a defensive player of the year that's your heisman moment right like that's one of those plays that tj watt makes right High leverage against a double team, game-changing play. Like, those are the plays that Miles Garrett hasn't made in his NFL career generally before now. He makes one, and it's on a two-point conversion, so no one will ever remember it. Doesn't count. I remember, though, Sam. I'll yeah. bring it up. You're a voter. You'll remember it. I also remember Nick Bosa had a pretty clean, awesome sack on a two-point conversion against the Giants back in week three. I got them all stored up here. Yeah, good. When the TJ Watt sack totals come at us. Remind me when we get to voting. I'll remind so you. I Don't can, forget... Yeah. Back in week 14, Miles Garrett had the uh, clutch two-point conversion. Uh, Joe Flacco finishes 26 of 45 for 311 for the Browns. And I don't want to diminish Joe Flacco's sexy-looking stat line here. They're looking good. Um, but Joe Flacco's three touchdowns went for – I have my – pull up my notes it here. It did feature this game, in addition to weird interceptions, it featured some of the most total coverage busts I've ever seen in my life. So for the second straight week – the Browns score on their first drive yeah. in which there is a coverage bust with nobody anywhere in the neighborhood. A complete, like literally there wasn't a coverage defender on that side of the field. Nope. 
Like, Njoku scores a touchdown. Literally, there isn't a, a coverage guy on his side of the field. The guy who gets closest to him ends up being, like, the, the, the safety from the other side of the, the formation entirely. Like, wh- I've never – I don't know if – you're not going to see a more complete drop in coverage than that. So, again, Flacco had to, you know, at least see him. Then you have David Njoku. <laughs> what? Good job, Joe. David Njoku, crossing route, runs through the defense for a 30-yarder. And then the final one, which was ended up being the nail in the coffin, really, for, for the Browns because they, they never lost this lead. They were up 21-14. to 14. It's fourth and three. They're kind of in no man's land. Uh, Jags go all out blitz. This was a good job by Flacco. Finding the open man, he does a nice job kind of maneuvering the pocket, avoiding the rush. Gets the ball to David Bell, and the Jags fall down in coverage. Also, don't cover him, who just runs wide open for a 41-yard touchdown. On that first touchdown, the guy that ended up getting close to him was only brought in that direction because he was actually covering the tight end from the other side of the formation that was running a deep over. So if you take him out of it, the closest coverage defender to Njoku when the ball hit his hands would have been 20 yards of yardage markers plus the pythagorean 20 yards laterally whatever the hell that works out to be he would have been like a good 20 yards away from him that's how complete and total a coverage bust that was um so yeah it was so joe flacco had three touchdowns for 105 his on his three touchdowns he picks up 105 passing yards um in part because i think it was mostly bad defense critically though you know we've said before Joe Flacco is a little bit like Desmond Ritter in terms of like the the down to down level of his play is quite good. It's just that you're never that far away from the cataclysmic disaster play that tends to cost them games. They didn't have that in this game. Now other people did. Like they, Amari Cooper catches the ball, goes on a run, then fumbles it away. You're like, eh. So the Browns Flacco got strip sacked on a play that was difficult yeah. to avoid. I mean that yes. I mean, he didn't, so there were he didn't have egregious plays. Right, but Flacco. he didn't have that, like, the one random, like, the last week, right, where he just heaves it blindly into the middle of the field out of safety. And, like, what the hell is that? He didn't have that play. And if Joe Placco can get, it, get through a game without one of those, this defense is good enough that they're probably going to win that game. I don't know if we've re- reviewed this Flacco play. It was an unblocked rusher. I don't know how much he need, needs to be able to see that. But you're right. I mean, it's like we – I used in PFF terms, if the Browns quarterback can play – 70 grade pff grade football then they're a very dangerous team flacco's in that range yesterday played far better than you, what we, anything we saw from dtr or pj walker um D- deshaun watson was starting to play close to this level here um i know there's funny stats out there about flacco throwing more touchdowns than watson and you know whatever there is pretty funny stats. There are some funny stats. Browns have four multiple touchdown games by quarterbacks this season, and Joe Flacco has two of them. See, it's a funny already. stat. It's it funny is. Because he's only started two games. Um, one other element. So, Dewan Jones has been hurt for a while, uh, hurt to the degree that he missed this game. So, they're starting uh, James Hudson at right tackle, which means both their tackles are bad now at this point, right? Because they've already lost Jedrick Wills earlier in the season. So they're down to Jerron Christian and James Hudson as their starting tackles from Cleveland's point of view with, you know, an aging Joe Flacco as their quarterback. So it's not the ideal paradigm for perfect pass protection, clean pockets. Um, Josh Allen, the Jags pass rusher, had a pretty good game and he's been their, you know, primary source of pass rush all season long. But this is another one of those games where you're like, hey, where is Trayvon Walker? 
like this, this is the game to show up. Like you've got two bad tackles. Pick your favorite and go beat him. And it, it didn't happen that much. Now it happened a couple of times, but again, like you're, this is the game. You're being set up. You're going to have 35, 40 pass rushing opportunities against bad tackles. Go make hay. And he didn't. So Jags fall. Uh, so let's, let's recap this here. Browns move to eight and five. Um, same record as the Chiefs and the Jags now. They're all eight and five. Browns are the top wild card team with the six, seven, and six teams right behind them. So if the playoffs started today, guess what would happen? Rematch. Browns at the Jaguars this time. That would be the first round matchup. So the Jags sitting at eight and five, still atop the AFC South because the Houston Texans lost to the New York Jets. So let's get to that game. Jets 30, Texans six. It was scoreless at the half. Mm, the Jets drop a 30 spot. It had been four years since that had happened. A game went scoreless at the half, and then it happened twice in the same day. We saw two. Um, little side note here. I got a pee. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Okay. Just telling you. Normally on Monday mornings, I've, I've, got it well, um, I've got it well planned out. I don't drink too much. Got an iron I, get, I, have a, I have a really good water to coffee balance. We've got about an hour and a half left in the show. Yeah. We're going to grind it out here. Yeah. We're going to grind it out. Okay. So that's all. That's a great side Let's note. reset again for social media. Yeah, you don't want that in the... Yeah. Jets, look, we're just full disclosure. We're just we're full disclosure to our viewers and listeners. Uh-huh. Jets 30, Texans 6. Jets move to 5-8. and eight. Texans fall to 7-6. and six. The Texans could not take advantage of the Jags losing. They would have been tied atop the AFC South. As I said, it was 0-0 at the half. That had not happened how long? Uh, four years, something like that. We had two in one day. Yes. Can't wait to get to that Vikings-Raiders recap. The Jets have now also gone 39 straight games without allowing a 300-yard passer. The Jets? Yeah, as a defense. Yeah. I mean, we said, look, first off, the Jets dropped 30 points in the second half. They win 30-6. to six. We said on the preview show, I saw one commenter say, oh, you say everything's going to be tough for C.J. Stroud. We said this is going to be C.J. Stroud's toughest yeah. toughest challenge. And it was. It was, it was a weather game. Mm-hmm. But, of course, Zach Wilson was playing in that same weather. It was a weather game. That affected things. But, yeah, C.J. Stroud finishes 10 <laughs> of 23 for 91 yards. He had no interceptions, but he easily could have three. Yeah. You know uh, that weird thing where, like, up in, okay, this week it's going to look – it's not as good. It's not as fun anymore. But the Eagles had, like, one loss, and it was against Zach Wilson, which made no sense, right? C.J. Stroud is having this, like, MVP caliber season, and then he's been outplayed by Zach Wilson and, and Bryce Young. Yeah. Who, that doesn't make any sense either. Well, Zach, how about Zach Wilson this year, who's played horribly, except has outplayed Patrick Mahomes and C.J. Stroud. Yes, <laughs> and now has been recentered, so is a superstar. I cannot say enough good things about Zach Wilson in his performance yesterday. He was really good. This this was was this his best game of his career? Has to be right. Um, yeah, I don't know what the he's grades. had games where he's beaten good teams, but they've never been like actually impressive Zach Wilson performances. This was an actually impressive Zach Wilson performance against a good defense, 
and he won. From the get-go, Zach Wilson looked confident. I mean, I, I mean, I saw three throws from him. He looked centered. He looked confident. Very centered. He looked decisive. So I tweeted it early. I was like, I have to say this. I was saying this when the Jets had zero points in the first half. I said, because it hasn't happened yet, confidence and decisiveness from Zach Wilson is through the roof right now. And it wasn't showing up on the stat sheet. But he's sitting there in the pocket. And in, 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 in past Zach Wilson games, you would see him roll out and make a cool throw and everything. It's like, oh, there's some of the talent. Mm. But you'd say, Zach, could you at least just check down at the right time? Could you at least hit the easy throw? In this game, he did both. He was throwing passes up the seam accurately. He was double clutching a little hole shot, and he felt it, and he you know led, led a guy away from coverage. He did the roll left. There were some egregious, awesome throwbacks across your body yesterday yeah. in the, it, across the NFL. Justin Fields had one we didn't mention. But Wilson rolls left, throws back across his body, a great pass to I, Garrett Wilson. <laughs> I was trying to work out if that was – if that was great or lucky. I it was great. It I was outstanding. figure it out at the time. I, I don't know if it's because Zach Wilson, you're like, I, I, I'm less inclined to give you the benefit of the doubt than I would a quarterback that I've seen do that a lot of times. But that was the BYU play that's like never been there in his NFL career. It's like the, that he did all the time in college. And then it just hasn't been part of his NFL game. He finally had one. And you're so shocked by it. You're like, was, what, where's that been? If, if, I'm assuming the spatial awareness is good enough that you got it there, and, and you deserve credit for it. So well, I cannot. You're centered, you can make those plays. So centered Zach Wilson, yeah, goes 27 for 36, for 301, two touchdowns. I mean, the only real blemish he, he has a 10 yard scramble where he fumbles yeah. at the end of the scramble. That wasn't great. Um, not a great play. Uh, he did get sacked a few times, but here's the other part of this. Right, the pass protection was still terrible. The Jets' pass protection all year has been horrendous. And there were several plays where Zach Wilson's either just getting the ball out quickly enough that it didn't matter, or he was avoiding pressure, right? Some of those, like on the dig to uh, Garrett Wilson, if he had good pass protection, he probably would have hit the dig in stride, like within the rhythm of the offense. But because pressure came so quickly, he rolled out and then got back to it, and it was a really impressive play. So that was what I think I was most impressed on. Uh, about with Zach Wilson. It wasn't like the Jets' offensive line and pass protection just st- you know stepped up yeah. in this game. They were just as bad as they've been this entire season, and it didn't matter. Wilson was unbelievable in this football game. Well, this is the game. The question all season long has been, like, would it have made any difference if Aaron Rodgers was playing because the pass protection, the rest of the team is so bad. Like, you know, it's not functional anyway. Well, this is the game that's like, hey, no, if you get a really good quarterback in the zone – it can work. It works fine. Like, Houston's defense is good, and it got a lot of pressure, and Zach Wilson was able to overcome it and play like it didn't matter, which you would assume Aaron Rodgers is capable of doing most of the time had he been healthy and playing. I'm not saying every Rodgers game would look like this, um, necessarily, like stat line-wise, but Rodgers probably would have had a few of these games sprinkled yeah. in where the pass pro was terrible. He would still put up good numbers, get sacked a few times. I was just so impressed. And, of course, stylistically – it looks like Rodgers, right? He's the, he's the you know the jump throw type stuff, and the way he switches his feet and kind of you know arm angles and the whole thing. Um, I I I know there's definitely some some announcers out there that overuse cliches. Mm. I've been overusing the confidence factor for quarterbacks lately, um, so I will happily admit that. But there's something to it. The way again, the, the last few weeks we've seen Jordan Love look completely different the way he's played football right? Just decisiveness, 
knowing what he when he sees it, he's getting rid of it. The way Jake Browning has played the last few weeks, and now Zach Wilson, even if it's just for one game, this was real. This was a real one game. He had a he had a half against the Chiefs, maybe a little over a half against the Chiefs. He also dropped a snap in there as well, but he had a half against the Chiefs where it was like, wow, there's something there. And then this game, there's not a lot to point to, but when it's been good, it's been good. And this was very impressive by Zach Wilson because he saw it, he threw it, he made special plays, but I think more importantly, he just made the plays that were in front of him and didn't miss that many easy throws. I wonder if the Packers centered Jordan Love just quietly. They just didn't tell anybody about it's all of, it. They just all recentered of, him. All of Rodgers' protégés have been centered. It makes you wonder weeks. whether they should have recentered him earlier. I mean, there was a lot of <laughs> they should instead of waiting a couple of years. Like maybe the, this was if this was the problem all the way along. You know, he's just been off center. Maybe centered Zach Wilson is what they need. They don't need centered Aaron Rodgers. Well, Zach centered, Wilson's enough. If he's centered cheaper. Zach Wilson is actually you know the, is the number Rogers. two overall pick and looking like the future, that's reset to the man right away. I try. I, I I think I said this in the preview show I probably said it about Zach Wilson and Mitchell Trubisky I was like you never really know with these guys if like the switch will flip because love was you know start 11 or 12 of his career and look Josh Allen showed a lot of positive signs in his first two years but he wasn't that good but by year three <laughs> he was outstanding he became a star like the switch flipped you just never know and again I'm not trying to like you know overrate one game you just never know you're saying this is the Zach Wilson breakout it's happened now, now we're I mean, good. the data would say that's unlikely, mm. but this was a completely different. Can you imagine look. if it happened? We've also the standards have been so low for Zach Wilson, but this is that one, when you like, see this, yeah. it's like okay, this looks completely different, right? But this is different too. Like there have been other games. Again, they beat Philadelphia, they beat Buffalo. It was it last year, like one of his other previous. What the hell happened there? Games, but in those games, Zach Wilson didn't look like this. He just didn't he just played well enough that the rest of the team didn't lose that's effectively what happened in those games um this game though Zach Wilson played genuinely well and was a big reason for them winning the football game in addition to that that's why it was 30 to 6 instead of 12 to 6 you know it's like hey look the, the Jets got another win that wasn't expected of them and Zach Wilson didn't screw it up this was different in that I don't think he's had a game like this before where he's gone out Bald looked really good in addition to hasn't screwed to not screwing it up actually made a ton of positive plays and you know it was a big reason for the victory I completely agree that that's why I'm saying this like when the Kansas City game was real something switched in that Kansas City game where he was playing kind of like this for about a half little over a half last year when it was like a fake turnaround he threw a game-winning screen against Buffalo and Josh Allen kept throwing the ball to the Jets defense that was not a turnaround by Zach Wilson. This one looks completely different, and he did it for an entire game. So we'll see if he could build on it. Was very impressed. I know they didn't score in the first half, but I thought he was still playing well, and then they put up 30 in the second half. So I was really impressed. Also impressed by the Jets' defense, of course, again. Um, worst game of Stroud's career. He ends up getting hurt. He got, took an absolute – he just got wrecked, man. Head hit the turf. Um, he ends up leaving the game. Davis Mills had to come in. But all season – the Jets' defense, I know their corners are good. DJ Reed, Sauce Gardner, the middle of the defense has been so good. I got to go back and rerun the numbers. It's like EPA per play thrown in the middle of the field against the Jets is 
so low compared to every every other defense in the league. Their linebackers, uh, C.J. Mosley made some plays. Quincy Wilson's uh, Williams is having a great season. Mm. All of the stuff that our friend Bobby and the Texans and the Shanahan tree, all that middle of the field that they open up schematically, closed in this game. And whatever it was with Stroud, when he would get back to his second read, not seeing a linebacker there. That's a turnover-worthy play. He was putting the ball in harm's way. The Jets' defense cracked down on this Texans offense really well. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about that in the preview show, right? Robert Sala comes from this system like he knows what to expect. You also can't overlook, I think, the impact of the lack of receivers. No Nico Collins. Nico Collins lasted like a couple of plays, right? And then he has a catch, hurts his calf, leaves the game, never comes back. So now you're down Tank Dell, who you know has been arguably their number one receiver in terms of connection with C.J. Stroud, and Nico Collins, who's been the number one receiver in terms of volume and just where the ball goes. So you take away his top two targets, and you've got the ghost of Robert Woods out there and Noah Brown, who's been great as a number three or number four option, but now those one of those guys has got to be the number one option. The next two people on the depth chart in terms of just targets – are going to be tight end Brevin Jordan, Xavier Hutchinson, the rookie, John Mechie showing up, Devin Singletary. Like, this is not the Texans' offense anymore. It's C.J. Stroud, who is still a rookie. It's PFF Bobby trying to call plays for people that aren't essentially in the game plan, right? That against arguably the best defense in the NFL. It's it's very difficult to overstate the impact that that has. Yeah, so I'm not going to... Look, C.J. Stroud's had a fantastic season. This was a rough game. This was similar to his game against Northwestern last yeah. year in heavy wins and uh, where he threw for about 70 yards. So, yeah, it, uh, maybe the weather was a factor, but also I think the receivers and the Jets' defense, you all added up. Impressive win for the Jets. Um, and, I, again, I can't say enough good things about Zach Wilson and how well he played in this football game. Centered Zach Wilson. Centered. we got to do wit and without centering. I mean, if I had a struggling quarterback, I would immediately think about centering him. Maybe maybe Bryce Young needs a week off to go center himself. Maybe Aaron Rodgers is a better coach than a player. Should be coaching more. <laughs> well, he might there be there were Jets players who said, and, and look, when you watch Zach Wilson play, it always felt like he was pressing and he you know, just was trying to do too much and it looked like he was struggling living up to the hype of being the number two overall pick. And everybody in the locker room said he just went out there and was like, whatever. Who cares? I've already been benched. Play free. Multiple times. Um, And it's one of those things where it's, you know, success breeds confidence and confidence breeds success. Chicken or the egg, what came first? You know, he could have played free and been terrible. Was that actually what it was? But, I mean, if he plays without worrying about losing his job and living up to the hype, who knows? Maybe he he has turned a corner. Um, I remain intrigued by Zach Wilson just to see what's going to happen every single week. All right, let's go Ravens 37, Rams 31. Wrap up the 1 o'clock games here. Ravens move to 10-3. and three. Rams fall to 6-7. and seven. It was a walk-off in overtime, Sam. Tylen Wallace with a walk-off punt return. He's the backup punt returner because Devin DuVernay got hurt during the game. Wallace comes in. Both teams in overtime go three and out. Looked like we're, you know, I mean, we were less than two minutes into overtime and neither team had a first down. And the Rams punt, and Tylen Wallace has one of the best punt returns I've seen in recent years. 76 yards. Looked like he was going to go down a few different times, but that was it. Walk off for the Ravens. Um, I wrote down a note here. I was trying to count the lead changes 
It's crazy in this, this game. game. I don't know if it goes from a tie to a lead. Does that count as a lead change? Uh, Depending on if those count. No. Probably not, right? It's like 11 or 12 lead changes in this game. It was back and forth. Incredible battle by the Rams. But, yeah, the Ravens just too good in the end here. Yeah, like the back end of this. It was a pretty good game all the way along. Um, fun to watch. But the back end of this game got absolutely crazy. I mean, just constant lead changes. Both teams looking like they were going to win at various points. Um, completely wild. And then it ends on that walk-off punt return touchdown from Tylen Wallace, who – I mean, I said to you when it happened, I don't understand why he's not a bigger part of this team everywhere. Like, he's good. And for some reason, not only is he buried on the depth chart at receiver, but he can't even make the team sort of as a, a return guy because they've got Duvernay instead. He's like the backup everything. But every time he gets an opportunity, he actually looks like he can do damage and make plays for a team that hasn't always had a particularly useful wide receiver depth chart. And the guy still can't get many opportunities. It's kind of strange. Yeah, I don't think – did he not run fast at the combine or something? And then, But he looked fast on the field, and he made a lot of plays on the ball. But, I mean, this was a crazy impressive punt return. Um, as far as the ebb and flow of the game, I mean, the Rams, Rams were touchdown underdogs, and they just kept hanging in there, man. I mean, Lamar Jackson, talk about coverage bust. Isaiah likely had zero people covering him on a 54-yard touchdown to kick off the scoring. Mm -hmm. Rams came back. Cooper Cup had a great game, looked crisp, looked sharp and quick. And I'll tell you what, when the Rams have Cooper Cup and Puka Nakua on the field and healthy, that is a difficult passing attack, attack to stop. We saw that in this game. Nakua with a crazy diving catch, like five minutes left. And weather game, right? So he's no out gloves. there. No gloves, but finger tape. Like yeah. old school. Collinsworth style. Did, was, did, did Chris just... Was he a he, finger tape guy? He never wore gloves. Yeah. But I don't know if he went finger tape or not. The, the only... Dallas Clark, I think, used to do finger tape sometimes. Yes, Dallas Clark. might be a lot of did. Dallas. Like, that's, that's the name that jumped to mind when I saw, like, diving perfect hands catch with just the finger tape. That, that's, okay, that Dallas, Dallas Clark's Clark. definitely the right one. Yeah. Um, we had a 46-yard touchdown to OBJ in there, where, again, he got behind the defense. Dude, this was another game where there's a lot of just total coverage busts in this game. Like, yes. They were, the, the Ravens kept running double moves, and the Rams were just biting all over the first move and wide open on the double. So gets OBJ gets wide open on this uh, slant and go. Later on, they did like, a, like an in and go, like a dig and then up. But every time they ran a double move, the, the Rams just bit all over it and were – wide open on the second one um so a couple other highlights here it's 20 to 20 mid around the middle of the third quarter um everybody tags me when tyler linderbaum does something good yeah. usually but this time i got tagged tyler linderbaum playmaking center because he snapped the ball and lamar jackson wasn't looking yeah um so that ended up as a safety so that was one of the lead changes the rams go up 22 to 20 so that's a lead change right it was 20 to 20 the lead didn't change but there became a new leader, the yeah, Rams, there go, go up 22 when, to 20. When you said the lead didn't change, I think that's the problem. Okay, so there's only 11 lead changes or, yeah. or whatever I counted. So the Rams go up 22 to 20. Ravens come back with a field goal. They're up 23-22. And then inside of five minutes in the fourth quarter, we have the Rams going 85 yards with uh, Matthew Stafford to Demarcus Robinson for a five-yard touchdown. Then the Ravens came back with what could have been the game winner. Lamar Jackson on third and 17 hit Zay Flowers for a 21-yard touchdown. Great throw and catch by both players there. Credit 
Give Flowers his flowers, man. That's the only time I'll use it. Give Zay his flowers. Also got the two-point conversion. So the Rams, uh, the Ravens are up three, thirty-one to twenty-eight. An octopus, they call that. And by they, I mean just the announcers. What'd they call it? An octopus. When you get the touchdown and the two-point conversion, eight points. So you're an oct- you get the octopus. I've never heard that. You've never heard it. So the only people I've ever heard say that are announcers. But all of them do it. Every single announcer seems to know the term octopus because when a player does it, they all say. And, like, they're the only people I've ever heard say that. Is that like they're the only people who use the word ensuing in the, uh, <laughs> in the English language, the ensuing Maybe. kickoff? Yeah. That's never used in real life. Right. So the Ravens, after the octopus by Zay Flowers, mm-hmm. they're up 31-28. to 28. The, Ra- the Rams come back and kick a field goal with 11 seconds left to tie it at 31 to go to overtime couple interesting plays here, though, because the Rams had one timeout with 17 seconds left, and they used it to avoid a delay of game. And I'm not saying that would have been the difference in the game, but it is just – Sean McVay is a great coach. It is just unbelievable how many times a play call – they end up having to take timeouts because a play call is not getting in for whatever reason. And I think that that hurts the Rams' opportunity to at least take a couple shots – at the end zone. That's all. Um, Where's my note on it? I have a lot of notes here. Um, but yeah, 17 seconds left, I believe it was. And they, so they end up going, kick the field goal to go to overtime. It's 31 31. And like I said, both teams, I think it was three and out pretty quick in overtime before Tylen Wallace has that game winner. Yeah. Uh, big performance of the Rams for uh, by Davis Allen. Forced into the the bench, the rookie fifth round tight end. Had, Caught a screen for a touchdown. Yeah, they needed they needed him on a few plays. Here. Yeah, four catches for fifty yards. Um, one what was it one uh, two first downs, the touchdown. He had a like he was part of that whole offense that was moving the ball. Cooper Cup, Bukunakua, and rookie Davis Allen, which means the entire uh, depth chart of contributors for the Rams is with basically fifth round picks. Yeah. I mean, Kyron Williams still had his 114 yards on 25 carries. Like, the Rams, all, all season we've said they're a tough team to peg because they're so young everywhere else. But um, this was the first game where I thought Cooper Cup really looked like himself. You know, just had that feel, the quickness after the catch. Um, and then, you know, there haven't been too many games where not only was Cup healthy, but him and Pukunakua playing well at the same time. There, it's also Demarcus Robinson is now wide receiver three over there which is which is kind of funny he had a couple big plays um on those comeback drives and Stafford you know spreading the ball around I mean the Rams it's an intriguing group of playmakers I just think they're the rest of the roster is so young that they get overwhelmed in games like this where it's tough to hang with the Ravens Aaron Donald was on a mission to try and sack Lamar Jackson he hasn't got him yet in his NFL career they gave I forget what the number was they gave the number of quarterbacks that Aaron Donald has sacked in his NFL career and it's like 52 or something wow like it's it's over 50 and that's half of his sacks like he only gets them one he gets one guy and then moves on to the next one right and just gets a ton of pressure and and only sacks the guy once and then moves on to the next quarterback but he's never got Lamar and this game was like an entire game of Donald just whooping the lineman and then like scrambling around after Lamar Jackson trying to get him down behind the line of scrimmage. Never got it done, but like had a ton of pressure and a bunch more plays where he beat his guy with the balls gone and didn't get a chance to be pressure. Was 
on a mission to try and get Lamar as a sack. Lamar Jackson did it. He he did a great job avoiding sacks. He had four four first downs on the ground. Um, only ended up getting sacked twice. He was he did do a good job maneuvering the pocket a bunch. I also thought this this game did a nice job highlighting for the first time in Lamar Jackson's career having this plethora of playmakers, even with Mark Andrews out, having an OBJ for a big play. Isaiah likely, I know is a coverage bust, but he's been uh, pretty solid since Mark Andrews got hurt. Having Zay Flowers, um, Nelson Aguilar and Rashad Bateman got in the mix and everything. I mean, it is, it's the best group of playmakers that they've had other than like maybe a small stretch, maybe two years ago when they had Marquise Brown still on the team and Bateman, they, they had guys healthy. But it's the best group of playmakers they've had and I think you credit the Ravens because they're able to play in these shootouts, man. If you know they didn't have to, they didn't lean on the ground game as much as they normally do. They won through the air, um, and of course with a walk-off punt return as well. Mm-hmm. But one other thing to keep note on: um, breakout superstar Kyle Hamilton left with an injury. I think he's getting tests done today to see the extent of it. That's all. Yeah. I got no more use for this game. No, this is where you move on to the next one. Ravens are 10-3 and three and uh, in sole possession of first place in the AFC pending the Dolphins game tonight. But Dolphins are 9-3. and three. But the Ravens creeping closer to that number one seed, which they did have in 2019 during Lamar Jackson's MVP season. All right, let me find it so I can tell you about our friends over at AG1. Before we get to the 4 o'clock games, just teaser alert coming up soon. We're going to break down a three to nothing game coming up soon. Don't go, don't touch that dial, as they say. Mm. Three nothing game coming up. But first, got to tell you about our friends over at AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. We drink it every day here on the PFF NFL podcast. Love it because we get all those supplements and nutrients all in one place with our AG1. Drink it in the morning with my coffee. Maybe that's why I got to, whatever. Uh, makes me feel great. Take on the day, get a little caffeine, get some nutrients, get everything I need. For my body to feel great and have a great day. All great athletes have one thing in common. They take care of their bodies, and it's a, a huge part of that does start with optimizing whole body health. A lot of them also drink AG1. That's why I'm a huge fan. With every daily serving, I'm setting myself up for success with 75 high-quality ingredients. They give me key daily nutrients that support energy, focus, strength, and clarity. It's this micro habit that delivers macro benefits and helps just about everybody take care, great care of their health every single day. Also like that it costs less than $3 a day. Pretty good deal. If you ask me, it's a really effective daily habit with high-quality sourced ingredients. Win-win for everybody here on the PFF NFL Podcast. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. you got to go to drinkag1.com slash pff that's drink ag the number one dot com slash pff go check it out right now all right on to the four o'clocks you ready mm-hmm. minnesota vikings three las vegas raiders zero you know what else is uh turning 38 today what's that the naked gun movie I'm just things that haven't happened in a long time. The Naked Gun movie came out 38 years ago today. That's about the kind of... This is... What else was 38? Well, that's about the kind of uh, number of years you have to go back to find all of the possibilities that this game was going to run into. 38 years? Score. Yeah. Well, there was a 3 nothing game in 2007. 
Steelers Dolphins. Yes. Monday Night Football. 2007. I remember that uh, game. Then there was a the previous one before that was 93. Then there was 82. Apparently 3 nothing has happened 60 times, but most of them were in the 30s. <laughs> this is We were looking game. like at one point it seemed genuinely likely. So the, we said before 0-0 at the half hadn't happened in 4 years and then two of them happened in the same game. And then you know, three quarters in, you're like, this game might actually end 0-0. When was the last time that's happened? Um, and apparently the last time that had happened was 1943. My favorite stat. That's what we were shooting for here. My favorite stat about this game is that the Minnesota Vikings won 3 nothing on the same day that the Minnesota Wild also won 3 nothing. Credit to um, whoever it is, Daily Norseman. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I mean, it's pretty researchable, but that's where I saw it first. So credit to them. Um, so I'm checking out some Minnesota Wild highlights right now. Oh, yeah? They beat the Kraken last night. The Kraken. Yeah. I cannot believe that the Minnesota Vikings and the Wild both won a game 3 nothing on the same day. That's my favorite part about this football game. Okay. Wild got up one nothing in the first period. Couple, uh, They had more points in the first two quarters quarters or periods than the Vikings did yeah and they both ended up three nothing I was kind of sad that the kicker ended up making the kick and we got we didn't get this yeah we were all you know first time since 1943 is a hell of a stat we were all collectively rooting for zero 2007 sure it's good but it's not it's not the 40s but apparently so that's happened what was it how many times did it happen like 50, 73, 73 times a game has been 0-0 in NFL history, but it hasn't happened since 1943. So like every third game before 1943 must have been 0-0. Yeah, football was... Because they had less of them as well. Like there's only like 12 teams back then, albeit they changed every other year. But like every other game... that a forward pass existed back then. (laughs) This is what people want to go back to when they're like... Ah, you know, ban this. Let's go. Back. This is what football was meant to be. It wasn't about pushing people. Well, this is, that was football. That That's was, what you want. That was not the issue back then. Anyway, um, some of the highlights here in this game. There were no highlights in this game. Uh, Joshua Dobbs got benched. Uh, but he did have about six passes dropped, but the stat line was... He also got Justin Jefferson killed I right understand. after Justin Jefferson came back from injury. So Dobbs finishes 10 for 23 for 63 yards through... Um, on back-to-back plays, throws a nice comeback to Justin Jefferson and then throws what we call a hospital ball yeah. to Justin Jefferson that literally landed Justin Jefferson in the hospital. I've seen reports that there's uh, questions about ribs and a multi-week injury here. But he throws an extremely high pass over the middle to Jefferson who gets popped and he ended up having to leave the game. Josh Dobbs also left the game. Coach's decision. In favor of Nick Mullins. They termed it on the broadcast, you know, Kevin O'Connell looking to try and spark the offense. Well, remember, the Vikings were coming off a bye. The last time we saw them, they lost on Monday Night Football in a horrible game against the Bears, where Josh Dobbs had the worst game he's had all season, and for the Vikings in particular. And at the end of that game, Kevin O'Connell was uh, was mum on who the quarterback would be coming out of the out of the bye. Yeah, but there was a chance that it was going to be Nick Mullins, and um, they went to Nick Mullins for the spark. Right, but that was a game where like it was there was just so many turnovers in that game. You know, you're like it would have been easy to sort of do the knee jerk reaction and go, okay, this is just 
pathetic. I'm moving on to the next guy. This is terrible. It can't happen. This was a game where neither of them were like turning the ball over every other drive. It was just that nobody was going anywhere. Like there was just no offense. Not, it wasn't catastrophic turnovers left, right, and center. The ball is just like you, you can't get out of your own way. It was just nobody could move the ball. So uh, Kevin O'Connell, a guy that's come from you know the Los Angeles Rams where they set records and put up points everywhere, had a really good offense in Minnesota. Like There's only so long the man can watch that happen before he's like, I have to change something. I can't, I can't have my name associated with a 0-0 tie. I need points. And I don't care if it's Nick Mullins or a rookie or anybody. I'm changing the quarterback right now because this can't happen. That's what he yeah. did. That's what he did. And Nick Mullins got nowhere either, except the three points. He got the three. Therefore, he won. Uh, Ivan Pace Jr., the rookie linebacker, with the game-sealing interception. He then proceeded to run to the end zone for the celebration and did a backflip. Yeah. Which made me ponder, the NFL loves guys who can do backflips. If you can jump out of a pool, if you could do a backflip, we love that stuff. How did Ivan Pace Jr. go undrafted if he could do a backflip? Because he's a great football player, and he can do a backflip? It's a great combination. A huge miss by uh, scouts last spring. I mean, was there video evidence of him doing a backflip? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's on him. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like that should have been – like, forget positional drills. That's you what gotta, you do at your pro day. you got to put an Instagram video out there of you Instagram, doing a backflip. pro day. Um, a couple other nuggets from this game. Um, I have to see what the 49ers ended up, but I'm pretty sure the Niners had more yards than both teams combined here. Um, the Vikings finished. Yeah, they definitely did. The Niners had more yards on their first 40 plays than the Vikings and Raiders had in this entire game. Vikings finished with 231 on 71 plays. Raiders finished with 202. 3.3 and 3.8 yards per play. I was going to say, there's got to be some fun box score numbers about this game. That's the fun one. That's about it. Three, yeah, three. Wow, 71 plays to go nowhere. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. They had 15 first downs on 71 plays. Yeah. How is that possible? Wasn't a great football game, Sam. Somehow they averaged seven plays per drive and still couldn't score. Um, so, yeah, Vikings defense has been playing really well lately. Ivan Pace, big game. Josh Metellus again with another really good game. Cameron Bynum, Harrison Smith, all their hybrid linebacker safety players playing well. So good job by them. Tyree Wilson, maybe career game for him, for the rookie, first rounder. So this was another game where, I mean, part of the problem, I think, was offensive lines on both sides got banged up. Um the center, Andre James, for the Raiders got hurt. Dylan Parham has to slide into center, sort of reshuffled there. The Vikings were already pretty banged up on the offensive line, went further banged up in this game, and were down like both starting guards at one various at one point in the game. That didn't help. But, yeah, it's just the only thing interesting about this game was were we going to see some crazy record set that hasn't happened since the 1940s. Um, so the Vikings are 7-6. and six. And so they're right now the sixth seed in the NFC. Seven and six Vikings. Still have the Packers at six and six right behind them. Um, and then th- four teams are six and seven. So the NFC has four six and seven teams. The AFC has six, seven, and six teams. Get all that? Mm-hmm. So Rams, Seahawks, Falcons, and Saints all six and seven. About a game, or exactly a game, behind the Vikings who are the sixth seed currently. 
They'd be at Detroit if the playoffs started today. Six versus three battle. Raiders fall to five and eight. Got no more use for this game. Never did. San Francisco 49ers 28. Seattle Seahawks 16. Niners move to 10 and three. Seahawks fall to six and seven. Niners did it again, man. Kicked it off with Christian McCaffrey. 72-yard run on the very first play from scrimmage. And then uh, the fantasy community was very upset that Jordan Mason, uh, what do we call that? Vulturing. Vulturing, I'm sorry. So in, in baseball, if you were a pitcher and you blew the save and then your team came back to win, we'd call that vulturing a win. So uh, Jordan Mason, yeah, vultures the touchdown for the fantasy community. But uh, McCaffrey finishes for a, with a buck 45 on 16 carries. And Brock Purdy, again, 19 of 27 for 368. That's 13.6 yards per attempt. Debo Samuel, another huge game. Brandon Ayuk, another huge game. George Kittle, all of them are great. Still don't know how the Niners only scored 28 points in you know, turnovers, but um, dominant outing again by this Niners offense. Yeah, against the Drew Locke-led Seahawks because Geno Smith um, doesn't play. Correct. Uh, and that, I mean, you just – just that information alone. You're like going up against the 49ers, and if you were told also the 49ers basically scored immediately, you're like, oh, this is going to be a blowout, not even close. But Drew Locke and the Seahawks hung pretty tough. They came back in the game, they made it an encounter, and then the 49ers eased away just the longer the game went because you can't stop all of those guys for the whole game. Like You can stop most of them most of the time, but then one guy is going to get open or bust off a play or you know break some tackles and then before you know it it's a big play and you're done and that's that's basically how it went sure it only cost him 28 points total but that was enough particularly when you know San Francisco's defense is nasty as well like that's the other side of this the 49ers they're not just this unstoppable offense which if they were might be enough to win a Super Bowl but the defense is really good it's also it's one of those defenses that um coincides with the offense you assume because you said hey is the is the best strategy to just get up early on the Niners well good luck with that one they they scored on two plays but is the best strategy to get the Niners to to play from behind right and there's there's an element to that because when the Niners are playing with a lead they have pass rushers everywhere right they're going to get after the quarterback they know when they put you into must pass situations it makes it more challenging they've got a good uh group of linebackers and Despite injuries, they had Traverius Ward go down after about four snaps. But they're pretty good at all levels of the defense, especially, you know, attacking the quarterback. Um, but you're right. Seattle hung tough. It was it was 10-7. to 7, And, you know, that first touchdown drew Locke to DK Metcalf. I don't know if your, your thoughts on it. We were debating in the grading chat what we thought Drew Locke was trying to do. Um, I'll describe that really quick. But DK Metcalf has a step on Ambry Thomas, the – cornerback where normally when you have a step right even you're leaving they say so if you have a step it's like you should be throwing that over the top and leading him into the end zone against single coverage drew Locke decides to i think rip a back shoulder which was an absolute laser mm. i mean he threw that thing hard drew Locke has i wish we had radar guns on some of the passes i wish we had good ball velocity numbers i feel like drew Locke, including the preseason has some of the fastest just laser beam throws in the NFL that's what this one was it went right by Thomas DK Metcalf either knew it was coming or just made an unbelievable adjustment for a to a pass that never should have been thrown regardless it was a long 31 yard touchdown 
um, DK Metcalf making some big plays these last couple weeks. So it was 10-7 Seattle at one point in the second quarter, and Brock Purdy just an absolute dime to Debo Samuel. Debo gets isolated on Jamal Adams. That's a mismatch in favor of the 49ers. Mm. Uh, Purdy hits him in stride, 54-yard touchdown, and the Niners were off to the races, running away from Seattle in this one. Well, clearly the Seahawks made the biggest mistake of the game when instead of when they won the coin toss and decided to defer. Can't do that. Should have, take, should have taken the ball. They're not one of the teams that listens to the podcast. Evidently and, not. Or, or listened to it and ignored it, which is even more egregious. That's certainly possible. <laughs> um, yeah, like the Jamal Adams getting left one-on-one with Debo Samuel over the middle having to turn and run as well is an absolute nightmare scenario for the Seahawks defense. But it's, I mean, this offense right now, it's so difficult to stop because there's every one of those guys can beat you on any individual play. I mean, you've got Debo Samuel, both as a runner and a receiver in this game, wrecking the Seahawks. You've got George Kittle, you know, beating Julian Love on a kind of double move, not even a double move, just a, fake um for his touchdown and Julian then, Love Julian Love Julian Love sorry yep um and you know Kittle every time he catches the ball in space and you get that run after the catch George Kittle you're kind of reminded just how good he is with the ball in his hands like he's right up there with Kelsey if not ahead of him now given where Kelsey is in terms of the most dynamic run after the catch tight end in the NFL uh and you just don't get to see that much of it because everybody else is making plays Ayuk is an amazing wide receiver, and that terrifies defenses every single down. And then you've got Brock Purdy making plays. Like, there was a scramble drill bomb he had in this game. With, again, those are sort of turning into his signature play at this point where he's able to make just enough adjustments in the pocket and then unleash, uh, unleash something deeper down the field. Those, I think, are the difference between last year Brock Purdy and this year Brock Purdy. He's adding those to this offense which is taking the whole thing to a different level. Like, it, I don't know how you stop that. Yeah. I mean, Brock Purdy, another really good, clean game from him. Bit of an unlucky interception, I think, in there. Um, yeah, just but, out of Ayuk's reach. And then sort of another one of those that gets batted up yeah. into it. But Purdy, I mean, he's now averaging for the season 9.9 yards per attempt. Yeah. Um, so I will, I'm going to look, first off, eight is a good number. Yes. He's about to exceed that by two and yards. And it's what Jimmy Garoppolo was doing, right? right? Um, and that's why all of the takes um, on Brock Purdy have to be nuanced, right? It can't be system quarterback, and it can't be it's all Kyle Shanahan and the playmakers. Right. It's, it's always going to be a combination of those things. Um, the reason why Brock Purdy might not get as much credit as other quarterbacks is because we have this baseline where Jimmy Garoppolo could not even complete a pass beyond 20 yards but still was averaging eight yards per attempt. That still exists in the 49ers offense but what also now exists is Brock Purdy hitting Debo Samuel in stride for a 54 yarder and the IU play for 45 that you mentioned and when you add those things up oh that equals almost 10 yards per attempt every single pass he's averaging a first down that's incredible Brock Purdy is now number two in the league in passing yards it's 17th in attempts it's insane the production of this 49ers passing offense so they deserve all the credit They've stayed healthy, right, other than missing the few Debo games. They've stayed healthy. And, again, in any given week, you don't know who it is. In this particular week, it was all of them. Every big playmaker 
made plays. Sometimes you have that game, all oh, Kittle only had one catch, or Ayuka only got targeted three times. Nope, everybody made big plays in this game. Um, I still don't know how the Niners only scored 28. They, look, they put up numbers where they should have put up 50. Um, the Niners averaged 9.9 per play in this game. So they averaged a first down per play on 53 plays. And the thing is, they basically don't need to target anybody that isn't one of those most like best playmakers. Like They put the ball in the air you know, 25, 26 times, whatever it was. And Debo Samuel got nine targets. Ayuk got eight. Kittle got five. And nobody else had more than one. Like, they just go, we're only going to give the ball to the best playmakers. And those guys will kill you. And everybody else is inconsequential. They don't even matter. Occasionally, we'll do some random-ass trick play or we'll, have to, we'll get far enough into the progression that, you know... Juwan Jennings gets the ball, but it's not designed, and you're not stopping number but one. But Jennings is kind of awesome too, right? But this especially is the, but after the catch, this is how good it's, it's. It's another one of these data points that shows how good this offense is. Like they never have to make it to number two or three in the read in the progression, yeah. Because number one is wide the hell open every play. Um, again, the whole thing with like system quarterback that people are trying. To, what what it really means is there's there's an element of free yards where we've seen history of success, right? We've seen a history of really good stat lines because of playmakers and open throws. And now Purdy's taking that to the next level. He's taking the free yards that every that Gar Jimmy Garoppolo had, that Matt Schaub has had, that RG3 had, that Kirk Cousins had, that all these, uh, that Matt Ryan had in 2016. But that's the thing. Brock Purdy's performance is as close to Matt Ryan as we've ever seen under Kyle Shanahan. And when Kyle Shanahan got Matt Ryan MVP caliber performance in 2016, they broke the league statistically. And that's what we're getting from Purdy is similar production in addition to, you know, good luck covering all these guys. It's a really difficult analysis because, you know, th there is that baseline of we know that this offense is a cheat code and has incredible production and blah 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 right um like all you need to know from that point of view is this offense is one two three in yards per attempt in the nfl this season like it's san francisco miami cj stroud and houston uh i was just trying to check i think that's still it old. is it's still up there unless you put jake browning into the same yeah thing. no i think it still holds as number three yes. um even with his performance yesterday so this offense is one two three in terms of yards per attempt we know this offense does this as a general concept on the other hand brock purdy is now distancing himself from everybody including the other people running this offense he is clearly playing above and beyond whatever the baseline expectation is for a quarterback within this system. Now, we also know, you know, th these other guys don't necessarily have the combination of McCaffrey, Ayuk, Debo Samuel, George Kittle, all put together with the godfather, Kyle Shanahan, call, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's more complicated than that. But we are now in this world where we are looking at it and saying, Purdy is putting up numbers that if we didn't know anything about his offense would be automatically MVP level, right? Like, they brought it up on the broadcast yesterday. Like, they just listed the number of things that he's first in in the NFL. And like, well, that's an MVP. And yeah, well, again, if you knew nothing about the offense, it would be. But we do know something about the offense, and we do know that in this world of the credit pie, Kyle Shanahan and the weapons and all that kind of thing, they deserve a pretty sizable piece. 
but is it enough to detract from an MVP case? And in this year, above all years, probably not. Well, the MVP, I think, if you're talking about, I think Dak Prescott's going to be the the market leader right now, but Purdy's going to be right behind him. I think the buzz, I mean, the, the numbers are so ridiculous, to your point. The buzz is getting there for Purdy. And if you want to make the point, the jump from Jimmy Garoppolo to Brock Purdy is the mass is a massive difference for the 49ers. You can make that point. Garoppolo is very effective in this system, despite, you know, uneven tape and putting the ball in harm's way and weird plays and not hitting downfield passes. Very productive. And the jump from Garoppolo to Brock Purdy has turned this thing into unstoppable now for the Niners, seemingly. So um, credit all the way around. I thought Seattle, yeah, they played hard. The Geno Smith injury was a groin injury. It happened later in the week. Hmm. Because they had, they had breaking news. That was like red zone breaking news at yeah. know, 3 o'clock or whatever it was um, that Drew Locke was getting the start. Again, I thought you know Seattle's offense has created some big plays these last few weeks, just not enough against this Niners team. Seattle had an amazing play in this game, the, the touchdown to Parkinson. Did you see that one? Yes. They like faked a screen fake left, screen. faked a screen to the right, and then came back with like a middle screen. That's an old play. Yeah, yeah. But That's it, a Shanahan play, right. actually. Came back with this middle screen at the time where the defense is already completely bitten on one of two previous fakes, and he's just wide open in the middle for a, a run-in score. Yeah, it's just those, a nice play. See? Scheme. Scheme touchdown. Free yeah. touchdown for Drew Locke, 25-yarder. Good scheme. Um, so Niners move to 10-3. and three. It's now a battle at the top of the NFC for that number one seed. You've got the 10-3 and three Niners and the 10-3 and three Cowboys. Of course, the Niners have the tiebreaker. So, as of right now... Playoffs go through San Francisco. They have the tiebreaker over the Cowboys and the Eagles, really. So um, Niners control their own destiny, as they say. All right, we got to move on. Got no more use for this game. Let's get this Denver Chargers game out of the way. We'll get to the other stuff. Broncos 24, Chargers 7. Broncos move to 7-6. and six. Chargers move to 5-8. and eight. And perhaps more importantly, Justin Herbert has broken a finger on his other hand. So he's now broken his throwing hand this on time. his left hand, but now his throwing hand in his – sounds like he's going to be out for the season. Yeah, index finger. Kind of important. Yeah, throwing for throwing a football. a football. So Chargers, ugh, rough season gets even worse. They're 5-8, and eight, and a guy um, – sorry, I forget it. Easton Stick is taking over. Yeah. He's hockey equipment. He's hockey equipment. Easton Stick. Just saying, Easton Stick, who's uh, – has about a thousand preseason dropbacks in his career is now going to be probably starting going forward here for the Chargers. Yeah, you know sometimes the the backup quarterback is a very different style to the starting quarterback. You know, like what like when um, when Jake Fromm was backing up Josh Allen. You're like, how does this even function? Like these are completely couldn't be further apart in terms of skill sets, style, everything is different. Easton Stick is like a bad tribute band to Justin Herbert, you know? It's like the same idea, big, tall, rocket arm quarterback, just without any of the thing that made the starting guy special, you know? Yeah. It's ACDC, but with none of the ACDC people, just people playing guitar riffs and trying to, you know, pass themselves off as ACDC. So that's what we're getting for the last four weeks of the year yeah. here. With Easton the Stick running the Chargers offense. What could be better? I mean – so stick has been around for seemingly forever i mean because we have we watch preseason games he hasn't been around that long. i swear for the last six years i've been watching him in august he's 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 got a thought he was drafted in 2019 
Yeah. Well, he he he's got to have preseason records or something. I don't think he has. Has to. I think you have a disproportionate view of how much football Easton Stick he's has played. played a lot of preseason football. Anyway, um, Broncos win the game. They were so early on. Herbert gets sacked four times on just twenty-one dropbacks, I believe it was. And um, the Broncos were doing a great job, just killing the Chargers' pass protection. Had an unblocked rusher over and over again, and that's ended up that ended up being what what got Herbert hurt, man. The pass protection was bad on a couple, but there was Jaquan McMillian. McMillan came in free. Alex Singleton came, uh, won a block, got through free. Josie Jewell gets, comes unblocked on the play that I think ended up hurting Herbert. The Broncos just killed the Chargers' protection schemes. Yeah. And, uh, and it more happened when Easton Stick came in, but Broncos' defense did a great well, that job. That was the there. McMillan play, right, where he got that trifecta that they overturned. For some reason, that was that passed me by. But McMillan comes in completely unblocked, nails Easton Stick, forces the fumble, scoops the ball up, scores. Like amazing play by McMillan. And then they're like, "No, his hand was coming forward." Oh, they called that incomplete. Yeah, yeah. They're like, well, sort of. I mean, it was coming forward, and then the ball got knocked out of it. Well, McMillan which is a fumble. Herbert, yeah, too, early on. I couldn't believe uh, that. That's a terrible call, in my opinion. Like the idea is the ball has got to be coming forward. Then he knocked the ball, like he knocked the fumble out of the hand. It's like the tuck rule thing. Sure, the ball was in there, but then he literally knocked it out. It's a fumble. Yeah, but no. Um, there was a great touchdown from Russell Wilson to Cortland Sutton for 46 yards once a week. Once a week. Wilson's numbers um, are going to not. They're going to look okay in this game, but he had a couple of absolute bombs that he got screwed by Jerry Judy in particular. Um, two two weird Judy plays. The do you want, were you going to describe them? Did I interrupt you? Well, there was one. There was one where he just made a mess of it and didn't catch it. And then the second one was more like that DJ Chark play we talked about, you know, seven hours or so ago, where like you just you need to come down with it. Like it's not a. It's probably not a drop. It's you know you can call it a couple of different things. But like a good top end receiver comes down with that consistently. The forty five yarder along the sideline. Yeah. Because that one, he was running a go, and Russ just kind of was like, hey, there's a lot of space here. I'm just going to throw it out toward the sideline. That wasn't the – it was kind of a scramble drill-ish adjustment. And Judy just, yeah, didn't catch it. And yeah. then he just didn't keep his feet in bounds in the end zone. Yes. That was bad. So Russell Wilson had several uh, big plays that didn't count because Jerry Judy wasn't able to come up with the football was my overall point there. No, I agree. I uh, second that one. He also had an interception. Um, that was an interception, right? Michael Davis, when he just took the ball away from Marvin Mims. That was a great play by Davis. That was Russell's um, one interception. Michael Davis just kind of stole it from Mims on the ground. Um, so, yeah, the stat line wasn't as good as it could have been for Russell Wilson. Um, other than that, they're, again, I credit the Broncos' defense. I have a few other notes few off of that. Notes. Uh, there was also, to set up the Broncos' first score, um, Justin Herbert has a batted pass go up. Jonathan Cooper intercepts intercepts it like the four yard line that set up the Broncos' first touchdown. It's another just like freaky weird play. Um, good play by Denver, but you know again I always say like when the pass gets batted, ninety seven ninety eight percent of the time the ball hits the ground. This one landed in 
Jonathan Cooper's hands and set up the Broncos' first three-yard touchdown run. Yeah, they were making the point on the broadcast that for a guy that's 6'6", Herbert gets the ball batted a lot. And this was one of those plays where you're like, okay, generally speaking, batted passes are kind of unlucky. But this was one where, like, the guy was right in your face the whole way. He tried to throw it through him. Yeah, like, he, yeah. it's exactly what happened. He looked, there was a, you know, a guy crossing in behind the line of scrimmage. You sort of, you know, you're looking beyond the pass rush to that open layer of the defense trying to find a receiver, and it's there. But the, the guy is right in front of you. You have, to, you have to be aware that what I'm attempting to do right now is to throw the football through a body. And that's just not going to happen. So like, there is a degree to which Herbert does seem to be the architect of his own demise sometimes. The, but batted passes, again, have nothing to do with It height. being an interception is unlucky. That's unlucky, right? And but he's turning still trying the, to... Yeah, but like, yes. At some point, the volume of which you are allowing that to happen is kind of on you. Like, sure, what happens to that ball once it gets batted by the defender is is down to luck. But if you keep throwing the ball at the helmet of defensive linemen that are right in front of you, that's going to lead to more interceptions than other people. This this particular play was what you described, but overall, batted passes are mostly a product, not of height. Um, arm angle is one of them, but it's about where you're throwing the ball. When you throw the ball short over the, over the ball, the middle of the field, you're going to have more batted passes. And Herbert has historically thrown the ball short a lot, right? Um, so he has a lot more bat- batted passes. It's not a height thing. Sometimes it is. Like sometimes you see Baker Mayfield just, you know, too short, gets gets batted. But most of the time when you throw short over the middle, the trajectory is lower. It's easier to bat. That's it's it. also more, you, I, I think where it's a height, where height factors into that kind of thing is you simply lose vision in the pocket and therefore start throwing the ball into weird places or in weird circumstances, and that's how it starts getting batted away. Like when you're 6'6", you should have a pretty good bird's-eye view of what's happening behind the, the pass rush and therefore be able to maneuver to get rid of the ball. That's where it would be a factor, as opposed to simply you are six inches shorter, therefore it's coming in right at defenders. Like that's not how it functions in, in my eyes. Uh, this apparently was the first division road win for Denver since 2019. What? Yeah. Wow. That's pretty bad. Right? Two for the Broncos. Who are now seven and six. Along with everybody else. And one game out of first place behind the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, ranking the seven and six teams for the 12th time here today. Steelers, Colts, Texans, Broncos, Bengals, Bills. That's the current. The Broncos win the tiebreak over Cincinnati based off best win percentage in conference games, and they win the tiebreak over Buffalo based on the head-to-head sweep. One to one to zero. So that's where the Broncos are right now. Seven and six, one game out of first place. Amazing turnaround by this defense compared to where they were earlier in the year. Um, full credit across the board. Give them their props. And not looking good for the Chargers going forward. Got no more use for this game. Why are the Broncos one game out of first place? Well, because the Buffalo Bills, 20. Kansas City Chiefs, 17. Bills move to 7-6 and six with the rest of the teams. And the Chiefs move, uh, fall to 8-5. and five. There's a lot to discuss in this game. It was supposed to be one of the games of the year, and it was for various reasons. 
Um, Buffalo was moving the ball early and often. They got up 14 to nothing, looked great. And then Kansas City's defense cracked down. Buffalo was not getting anything going. Uh, Buffalo, again, up 17-7 to into the second half. Kansas City comes back to tie it at 17. And then all the craziness. <laughs> Just it un- looked like it was going to happen again for Buffalo. This was a lot like the Bills-Eagles game, right, where Buffalo was just was by far the best team, certainly early. Get out to the big lead. They get that batted pass interception off Mahomes right away. Um, Allen, Great play, A.J. Epinesa, by the way. Yeah, Allen was, again, had determined that he had to do it all on his own, like the, the idea of any kind of protection for him in the offense gone out the window. They're just like, go make a play. They get the rolling mall touchdown where Allen runs into a mass of bodies at like the four-yard line, and then the entire offensive line just piles in behind him. Wouldn't you run more rolling malls with Josh Allen? 100%. Yeah. Um, so everything's going well for Buffalo. He has this fourth-and-one play, which I think was indicative of the fact that he's playing quite well and not in meltdown Josh Allen mode. It's like fourth-and-one. He bails. He rolls out to the right, and then – he, he wanted to run and realized, wait, there's like two linebackers between me and the, I'm not going to make it. So he held himself back. And then there were, because he, uh, he, he was sort of paralyzed, there wasn't really a pass open either. So he kind of dithered, oh, do I run? Do I stay? Uh, and then just sort of lunks around a linebacker and gets the ball to somebody and picks up the first down. Like, okay, Allen's in the zone when that happens. Like when yeah. he does that and doesn't screw it up and do something silly, Allen's playing well. So everything was going well. And, and then he they, screws it up and does something silly. Yeah, and then they stop scoring as well. And you're like, they're going to get punished again. It's going to be another one of these games where they're really good. They're, they look like the better team. Maybe they can beat anybody in the NFL and somehow lose again, like they did with the Eagles game. Um, yeah, so when it, when it was 14 to nothing, I remember I was, I was going to tweet, all right, Buffalo, they're up two scores. The only thing right now that can get Kansas City back in would be one of those Josh Allen patented turnovers. Yeah, um, He did have a turnover-worthy play that fell incomplete, but then he throws back across his body, um, gets picked off, and that was what gave the Chiefs a short field, sparked their comeback, their first touchdown. Um, but the, the play that you described was kind of like it's fourth down, and he's, he's trying to buy every – last split second so that he could figure out run pass find a hole have somebody break their coverage and he makes the first down that was a precursor to what ended up being the play of the game um and also highlights when you the josh allen and patrick mahomes factor those guys are just creating football plays that never existed before that when josh the play of the game before the offsides was josh allen rolling to the left rolling to the left rolling to the left falling out of bounds to the point where they had to review if he had stepped out of bounds. He got so close to the sideline. They had to review if he got out of bounds, stepped out of bounds. He did not. And throws the ball up to Latavius Murray on the scramble drill. Murray then catches it. And the touch on that as well. Like, didn't just throw yeah. it, but, like, lofted it gently in the air so that a running back who's not known for his hands could, like, just gently, you that's, know. Well, that's what him and Mahomes have been doing, right? It's like, I'm, I'm not going to, like, make sure I've got perfect form. I'm literally just, like, flipping the ball around whenever I have an opening, you know, because I've just prolonged the play so much. So Allen did unbelievable play to do that. Murray catches it, then fumbles, and the ball ends up out of bounds. They reviewed whether or not it was Allen stepped out of bounds. They reviewed if it was a catch. They reviewed to make sure nobody recovered it in bounds, but we knew that was pretty much the case. 
Um, and that ended up leading to the Bills game-winning, what ended up becoming the, the game-winning field goal. <laughs> that, that was like Keystone Cop stuff, them trying to recover the ball. Like it, <laughs> he, he didn't, I don't think, try to do this, but Gabe Davis, just in trying to bring the ball into his body, almost like fired it out of bounds. And that was the biggest win for Buffalo because they had yeah. possession before, so they held on to it. There was um, somebody – because remember, last, was it last week we praised Cordero Patterson for batting the ball out yeah. of bounds rather than risk the fumble. Um, somebody else did that in the game this week where it was like an ill-advised uh, desperation throw out by the quarterback to the running back who was going to get – I can't remember whether it was backwards or they were just – they knew they were going to get buried. So instead of catch it, he like – threw his hand up and like punched it over his head and just helped it on its way out of bounds rather than you know take the worst play yeah. which is clever but then this I think was entirely incidentally just tried to scoop it and fired it under himself and out of bounds one more thing as you mentioned with back at the beginning of the game when Buffalo was looking great James Cook looked fantastic they got him open on a on a, a Chiefs type play Romo highlighted the the halfback seam James Cook wide open up the seam he looked great running the ball um, they were featuring him early before. Again, they they stalled out for a while. But the the end of the game, man. Let's get into it. Well, so also, you know, it's seventeen fourteen late in the third quarter. The Bills forced a huge fumble when Kansas City Rashid was Rice. coming back. Uh, Christian Benford ripped it from Rasheed Rice. Teron Johnson recovered, and this is the one flaw that Rasheed Rice has had. I think he's still by far their best wide receiver, but. He's had some drops and he's had some turnovers in terms like that. If they could just avoid those plays, he might be the answer to everything they're dealing with. But there's just enough of those to either make them tap the brakes on, you know, giving him a monster workload or simply enough to undo some of the good work that he does. But they did a good job. And, you know, I think Andy Reid does this far more than other coaches. After the fumble, they came back the very next drive, threw right. a screen to him on the first play for 15 yards. Sure. I, I can't believe how good Rasheed Rice has become after the catch. He also had the one touchdown uh, back at the end zone as well in this game um, and caught a key back shoulder on that comeback attempt before the, before the madness. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, seven catches for 70 yards, a touchdown, but that turnover – I haven't checked in terms of EPA, but that might undo all of that in one play. Yeah, it was a it was a bad fumble. Um, so then it's tw- so a couple other things here. Buffalo is it's tied seventeen to seventeen, and Buffalo's driving with like five or six minutes left. So there's this if you're Buffalo, there's this best case scenario where you could somehow chew up all six seven minutes of the clock. Right and kick the field goal to end the game. That's unlikely. But they get down to close to two minutes left, just over, just outside the two-minute warning, and they get the dreaded, depending on which team you're watching here, the dreaded illegal contact, automatic first down. It was more. It was like third and long. Chiefs get called for illegal contact. The Bills get gifted a first down. Negates a sack of Josh Allen. So now they get first down just outside the two-minute warning. So there is this play in, in – Cincinnati did this against Kansas City a couple of years ago where they ran out the entire last two minutes, including the Chiefs' timeouts, to just make sure that they kicked a last-second field goal. And you never give Mahomes a chance. Right. And if there's any team that doesn't want to give Mahomes a chance, it's the Bills because they gave him 13 seconds once. Yeah. Right? And Instead so they kept passing before the two-minute warning. And they go with a little bubble screen. I don't know if it was a read, but they go bubble screen, drop, stop the clock. They end up taking like seconds off the clock. 
and it's third and long. And instead of there, there was a there was a world where they left the Chiefs either zero time or under a minute. Well, they ran three plays before the two minute warning, having been set up with right. first and ten at with twelve minute twelve seconds before the two minute warning. So in twelve seconds, they ran three plays. So they end up giving the Chiefs like a buck fifty or whatever it was, and down three, and um, you know. It's a different Chiefs team this year, but in the past, that's where Mahomes and the Chiefs usually lead the comeback. And we thought they did. Mahomes hits Travis Kelsey on a long pass. Travis Kelsey, who has made it a point that it doesn't matter where I am on the football field or who's near me, I'm just going to fire passes. Doesn't matter. I'm just going to start chucking passes. God, I love on top sport. of that, all right, underrated in this whole thing, he threw it to Kadarius Tony. He was like, sure, I trust you. Maybe that's what's missing here. Maybe Patrick Mahomes doesn't have the same level of confidence that Just, Travis Kelsey has in Kadarius Tony. Because with the game on the line, Travis Kelsey, who's getting into field goal range, is like, let me just lateral this thing. Just a little faith in your playmakers. Have a little faith in Kadarius Tony. Now, Tony, granted, had a little head start getting down the field on this particular Stop. play. Had a little head start getting down the field, and that's why he was there for the lateral. Um, so Travis Kelsey hits Kadarius Tony with a throwback lateral that would have been the go-ahead touchdown in one of the most ridiculous great plays in NFL history. It was insane. However, and then when the refs say offsides, you're like, oh, of course that's on the defense. Offsides, offense. It was on Kadarius Tony. Your this thoughts? play was insane. Like, I, I've been talking about this for a long time, the concept that adding laterals after the catch adding in actual elements of rugby to football is i honestly believe it's like the next phase of potential cheat code offense right there's a there's a world that that can open up if you simply trust players to execute a fairly basic skill that can propel an offense in a completely different dimension right it's the, the, and the, the reason they don't do it is the concern of a fumble, right? If you screw it up, it's a turnover, and that's a really bad play. Much more dangerous than it is in rugby. But sure, the, the reason that's so dangerous is because you don't practice it. It's not a thing you do. And it, it's, it's sort of the argument sounds a lot like the argument against the forward pass, right? Remember when people were like, well, if you throw the ball, three things can happen and two of them are bad. Well, we've gone from that to... Now every team in the NFL passes the ball more than they run it because it's more efficient, it's more uh, dangerous, and it's, it's more effective. This was a play where it's not even designed. Like, Kelsey catches this ball in the middle of the field and then, like, runs in a circle trying to find an open guy for no good reason and just spots Tony wide open on the left because everybody, like, three different guys are now converging on Kelsey to bring him down. And he's like, oh, that means nobody's covering covering this guy now i'm just gonna pitch in the ball fires it to tony who now has a walk-in 20-yard run for a touchdown a couple thoughts here and my, my question to you travis kelsey is one of the best natural playmakers in nfl history mm -hmm. and he happens to be paired up with one of the best natural quarterbacks as far as playmaking goes in nfl history yes right so travis kelsey they talk about all he doesn't even run routes he just kind of like slaloms through the defense and just knows where to go he's got instincts and feel and he's a former quarterback I don't know if you're suggesting, you know, Devontae Adams to do this or what, because we've also seen what happens when you tell, uh, 
hey, Jacoby, like Jacoby Myers starts to play instinctually. Yeah. Or no, no, no. So whatever it might be. What I'm suggesting is not this. This is the thing. What makes this so amazing is it was not designed. It was instinctive. It was ad-libbed. And it was crazy, right? But it worked, except for the penalty, which we'll get to. And as you said, like, he's even his route running in this play, like, he, he essentially course he gets himself open by pushing his route deeper into this like exchange and the the two bills defenders end up taking themselves out with the the guy trying to run vertical kelsey just slips underneath it he's wide open in the middle first down like that alone is an amazing play by kelsey and then you get this bit where after the catch he just runs into in this little circle to nowhere and just it it must just occur to him that if these three guys are on me, nobody's over there and this dude who ran a route and is now wide open. So, but what I am suggesting is instead of relying on a playmaker, in this case, Travis Kelsey, divining all of this information live as it happens and then realizing what that means. Set it up. Yes, draw it up as part of the play. Design it so that you have a trail runner coming in behind a guy who's caught the ball who the defense is no longer focusing on because the guy's caught the ball, right? You can actually create this dynamic with the play design and and draw it up so that instead of saying, hey, find this, make it happen, right? Because that's where you get the Jacoby Myers thing, where for some reason he, it's in his mind that I need to find some crazy lateral on this play and I'm going to put the ball in harm's way. Instead, you draw it up so that the ball carrier, the receiver, has a very simple yes or no. It's an either-or option right you catch the ball you look at this guy if the circumstance is such that everybody has abandoned him and he's wide open pitch him the ball if it isn't get tackled as you would normally do that's the next frontier you're putting a lot of pressure on uh players who aren't used to making those types of decisions i don't hate it how is that any different though from if you trust a receiver to to run an option route in a game run the play if safety is there run this route a, I think if safety isn't there run this other route it's the same concept you're just I asking would, him to make a very simple either or read i would liken it though to the the risk factor in say fourth downs where the payoff is great yes and the the risk is great obviously you lose the ball much like on a failed fourth down you lose the ball you lose um a lot of field position or points mm-hmm. potentially um but the but the payoff is great if it if it works um but it was, I mean, this is just Travis Kelsey, you know, freestyling out there, yeah. which is crazy. Part of uh, you know his greatness in the ability to do that. So this play gets negated because Kadarius Tony lined up offsides. They called it offensive offsides. Yeah. But controversy coming out of this game was um, the Chiefs were unhappy. They didn't Very like this unhappy. being called because um, it, this didn't end the game. By the way, they still had it became first and fifteen. Yeah. After this play, I believe, or second and fifteen. Um, they, second and 15. Yeah, so second and 15. They three, three incompletions followed this play for the Bills to, to seal the deal here. But uh, Mahomes was livid after the game. He has been, you know, we're a week removed from four bad calls in the last minute of the Packers-Chiefs Sunday night football game that went two and two. Both, they went both ways on Sunday night. But this particular play was the right call. I mean, he was offsides. The, the question and the controversy here is, you know, headlinesmen did do they do they have you know did they make sure did they check did they you know a lot of times the receiver is going to check hey am i good no you're not good back up we had the same debate a couple years ago terry mclaurin lined up uh 
he was off on the line when he wasn't supposed to be or whatever it was, and it negated a touchdown for Washington. Um, but Mahomes and the Chiefs were livid, and they just – and they – it was the right call, but they yeah. were more upset that either there was no warning given or not the time to make that call. But as uh, 5.4 million people somehow have seen – I just tw- I just tweeted a picture with Romo circling it. Everybody thought I circled it, but it was from the broadcast. And um, it's pretty egregious offside by Kadarius Tony here. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack. Uh, the first part is you can't argue the call. <laughs> the call itself. You can't look at it and argue, nah, he's onside, it's cool. Like It's definitely, clearly, inarguably, he is offside, right? So that part, and even the Chiefs are not arguing that. Like, you listen, and they've made some crappy arguments about this, and they keep arguing it. Like, Andy Reid is whinged about it. Mahomes is whinged about it. None of them are saying he's not offside. They're all just like, anyway. So that part is, is true. It is, he is offside. Now, a bunch of people are like, oh, how could you possibly line up there? That's, Tony's an idiot. This is ridiculous. Look, it's not as easy as you think it would be to simply be on the line because the line isn't the line, right? If you look where, is it Rasheed Rice on the other side, like where he's lined up? He's not on the line, so to speak. He's just on the line as we understand it from a football convention, which is in a slightly different point. And when you're looking down the line as a receiver, it's not as easy as you would think it is, right? Which is why you will see almost all the time a receiver line up, look to the sideline, and like point either I'm on or off to the side judge, right? Who will generally speaking give him an indication back, yes, you're in the right place, or no, move up or down, right? This happens all the time. The problem is, it's kind of like an uncodified convention that doesn't exist in the rule book anywhere. So you get plays like that Terry McLaurin thing, where McLaurin says, I asked, was I on the line? He said yes, and then threw a flag. That's a problem. So what we don't know here is, did that happen? Did Tony ask was he on the line or not and was he signaled somebody tweeted that he definitely did but that tweet got deleted so i don't know if that's true or not if he didn't ask that's his biggest flaw right not that he lined up offside because that can happen it's that he didn't check uh what andy reed is saying i think though it's unclear from his words um Andy Reid, uh, Ari Meroff has a tweet that uh, Andy Reid on the Kadarius Tony offsides. Usually I get a warning before something like that happens. And then he says, it's a bit embarrassing in the National Football League for that to take place. I've been in the league for a long time, haven't had one like that. I interpret that to mean generally when officials are going to call a guy offsides, they will give the coach a heads up that he is lining up offsides and like, hey, get him in line because the next time I'm going to call it, right? They'll give you like a, they'll give you a freebie. Yeah. They'll be like, hey, 19's lining up offside, get him in line or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start flagging it. Now, it could technically mean that with, he could be talking about within the play. The official will give me a heads up, hey, he's offside so I can get him onside before he calls a flag. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying that usually they'll like give them a free one. Um, and then Mahomes is just like, rant his he's just upset like Mahomes is is issuing very petulant whingy answers that I think are simply the product of immense frustration of a season in an offense that is not firing and is not his fault right so he's saying stuff like basically his argument effectively is it was an inconsequential penalty that didn't affect anything so they should have just let it slide 
You know, his argument's not great. No, it's a bad he argument. Has been, Mahomes has been, and I think on reflection down the line, Mahomes will probably regret some of the things he said about this. Yeah. But at the moment, the man is deeply frustrated, and you can understand it. He also complained. It's kind of funny. He complained about it to Josh Allen in their post game yeah. handshake. Right. And Allen's like, "All right, man. <laughs> like, okay, we need. You're like, we needed this win. Don't care." Um, yeah, he goes right out there to the handshake, and it's like, can't believe that worst call I've ever seen. Offensive offside, it's crazy. Like just bitching about it immediately, having already like screamed at the officials and had to have been held back on the sideline. The dude just lost his mind, and I, I get it. I mean, it's a, it is a really unfortunate and annoying way for a game like that to end, and for it to like remove one of the greatest plays in NFL history from the like that play didn't happen anymore. Right, all this. It's the new frontier. Rugby's the way. I, I have a YouTube video on how rugby could this unlock it big, all. This was your big moment. It was my, my, I'm the real loser here. That's you the are. important thing. Your whole brand was going to take off. All gone now. By the way, right, I'm starting to get a little bit annoyed every time the rugby thing happens. I get a bunch of people tagging me, or I tweet about it, and then a bunch of people tag PFT commenter. I'm sure I was at that thing first. I'm older than he is, probably. Right. I'm older than It's him. probably close. Yeah. No, I don't know. It's close. <laughs> anyway, there's no way that he was on the rugby bandwagon before I was. No way. He's Ain't a, no way. He's way more famous. Though. Hashtag Stephen A. <laughs> I was there first. Have to have been. Now, he's, made, he's, he's way more famous. He's more you. famous, and he's got a bigger platform, and he may have said it to more people, but I was there first. Well, let's get PFT back on probably. the podcast. Friend of the show. We'll get him back on the podcast to break it down and uh, get to the bottom of that. Ah, I am older than him. Therefore, I was there first. Good for you. Good for you, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was – Mahomes has been great. I mean, last week, they, you know, Marcos Valdez-Scanlon got a piggyback ride to the catch point, and mm. they didn't call it a defensive pass interference. And Mahomes kept back – you know, comes back and say, no, you know, let's win it on the field. He didn't complain. He's been great and, from a PR perspective. And to his credit, last week and this week is consistent in his argument. Like he, just his, said, yeah, he is basically like, like, just, just let him play. Yeah. Just let him play. He, that's his point is – don't decide it with the flag. Let him play. And if it goes against us letting him play, cool. But let him play. Like that, week to week, that is consistent. Now, I don't remember him being particularly vociferous at the end of the AFC title game last year of like, hey, don't, don't throw the flag on me getting hit out of bounds. Let him play. His game-winning drive in the AFC championship, they, they were stopped on third down and then a late right. hit put them in position for the game-winning field goal and then a third and four holding was the reason why we didn't get to see Jalen Hurts try a game-winning right. drive? So multiple, in the Super right? Both the, the last two games. I don't remember him coming out and saying that shouldn't have been a flag. They should have let it go, right? So he did not. There is a degree of you know inconsistency there, but at least in the last two weeks, his point has been: don't throw the flag. Let him decide it on the field. And that, I mean, that's a reasonable point. It is. This is the thing about this penalty call, right? It's correct. It's technical. It's, and the technicality of the penalty just feels crappy, right? It's like this is the greatest play, one of the greatest plays ever, and you've taken it off the field for what is an entirely correct call, but not one that anybody wants to see defining a game. That's what annoys people. And it like, you know, you can, there's various ways of reacting to that. Mahomes is a sort of toddler-like petulance and just whinging about it. Andy Reid is to say, you know, it feels like he could have resolved this in a in an unwritten rule type of way and just you know gotten away with it i don't know i just that whole area is kind of messy and i kind of feel like something like this has been coming for a long time and the nfl should probably clean it up um so 
couple things coming out of this. It was definitely multiple weeks of frustration, I think, building up. The Chiefs have lost three out of their last four, four out of their last six. Um, they're one in three since their bye. I was trying to hint at this coming out um, in the preview show. They played the Packers, who were coming off a bye. They played the Bills, who were coming off a bye. They're now going to play the Patriots coming off of a Thursday night game. So the Patriots have the couple extra days of rest. So, again, the Chiefs are now 8-5. and five. They haven't been in this position in multiple years. Um, far, far away from the number one seed now because of two games behind the Ravens. However, the last four games for Kansas City at New England and Bailey Zappi against the Raiders and Aiden O'Connell, against the Cincinnati Bengals and the great Jake Browning, and then against the Chargers and likely hockey equipment Easton Stick. So there's also a path for them to easily get back to what 12 and 5 and be in the mix here but clearly the Chiefs are frustrated in one of the biggest games of the year and for Buffalo they moved to 7 and 6 with the rest of the pack their schedule is kind of the opposite because yeah. they still have huge win for Buffalo yeah they have and it's not the opposite but they still have Dallas next week right so the Bills are in the middle of this run facing the Eagles the Chiefs now the Cowboys next week and then they still have Miami in hey. Miami to finish the season but Buffalo I don't know that they have to win out necessarily, but of course, with everybody seven and six like Buffalo, every game matters here. It undoes the damage from that Philadelphia loss, where they were they should have won that game, they didn't win the game, and, and it's more important because it's a conference. That's the thing you made yeah. that point at the time. Like, look, they still have a way. Like, they could get it back with Kansas City. This is a more important win if they get it, and they do. They end up splitting those two games and go 500 I guess that's probably about as good as you could have expected from those two games and they got the more important win in terms of AFC versus NFC so it does completely undo the damage but that's not to say it rescues the season because next you do have Dallas and then Chargers Patriots and Dolphins away to end the season so they've kept themselves alive but they're still very much in trouble all right let's get to the last game Sunday night football Philadelphia Eagles and Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys win a big game, 33-13 over the Eagles. Both teams 10-3. and The Cowboys now in control of the NFC East. They got the tiebreaker over the Eagles. So, again, the Cowboys, would, as of today, would be the number two seed. Eagles fall to the number five seed. Dallas got up early, and honestly, if Dak didn't have a fumble for a touchdown, this beatdown looks even worse. Yeah. Real statement win from, from the Cowboys. And I, gen, I think psychologically important for them. This yeah. was another roadmark towards where they want to be, which is proving that they can actually win when it matters. I think that's way more important than any um, seeding implications or you know division win or any of that stuff. I think the fact that they actually got a big win against a good team that they haven't been able to get over the hump against previously is huge. Like, way more important than the fact that they might now get better seeding. They went out there, scored, you know, on their uh, opening drive, looked great, um, and then dominated both sides of the ball for the rest of the game. And you're right, it shouldn't have been as close as it was. Genuine statement win. And when you start putting it together with the Seattle game last time, right, where they, they faced a slightly better opponent than they'd been beating, and that was a tough game and they got a win – now you go up against a, a team that's supposed to be very good. You handle them easily at home. Like, it's about as, as impressive a win as they can get. They're another team that's in the midst of a, a nasty schedule to end the season, but huge game for them. Yeah, Dallas has a run here as well. We could talk about that in a second. But, yeah, I mean, the Cowboys, for the whole year, all we remembered, at least we remembered, they got you know waxed by the Niners in San Francisco. 
um, lost to the Eagles in Philadelphia and everything around that other than a weird game against Arizona was the Cowboys just beating up on te- lesser teams. Um, but now they beat up on the Eagles at home. Um, again, one of the few things I got right this year. I did feel at the time that this, these two teams are close, that they would split, that the Eagles would win in Philadelphia, that Dallas would win in Dallas. But it's not just that now. Like These teams are trending in, the, in different directions. Like, I don't know if I'm putting too much stock in this run that the Eagles have had, but they've, they had to play Dallas, Kansas City, Buffalo, um, Niners, and then Dallas again. You don't get that often in the regular season because um, the Eagles are going to have an easy schedule for the, from here on out. But you don't usually get that run of like five Super Bowl. I, I know the Bills are seven and six, but like five teams that if they were playing in the Super Bowl, you wouldn't be surprised. Like those are week after week. I know there was a bye in the middle of that, but the Eagles played in a lot of tough games. And But for Dallas, I'm with you, man. We talked about it in the preview, the psychological aspect of we could beat one of the best teams in the NFL. We could do it uh, last year in Dallas. It was Gardner Minshew, not Jalen Hurts. So it's Hurts. And they beat the Eagles with their starters pretty much with Dallas Goddard coming back and the whole deal. Uh, really impressive win by Dallas. It was a fun game too. I mean, Chris was highlighting it a lot when you have – A.J. Brown and Stephon Gilmore going one-on-one. You have Micah Parsons and Lane Johnson. I mean, there's just amazing matchups on both sides of the ball in this game. It makes for uh, a lot of fun. So much that Chris was like, I just, I'm just happy to be here. Mm. Chris wasn't even going to announce or do anything. He was just going to watch. I was like, Chris, you got you to add some commentary here, Just man. cheer. Yeah. He was just happy to be there. No, he was just joking around, boss. But um, heavyweight battle, heavyweight battle, Cowboys and Eagles. It really was. Yeah, there were some absolutely titanic one-on-one matchups. Um, the Lane Johnson, Micah Parsons thing was fantastic to watch. It felt like – so Dallas started moving Stephon Gilmore. Um, like Deron Bland had that game where he got absolutely lit up by DK Metcalf, the Seahawks. <laughs> Basically undid his defensive player of the year candidacy in one game. And – it's almost like the Cowboys watched that game and decided we don't want this guy one-on-one with A.J. Brown and we're going to put Gilmore on him instead. And that was working. I mean, Gilmore gave up some plays but was in an absolute battle with A.J. Brown throughout the course of the game. And then late on when there was any vague hope of a Philadelphia comeback, uh, Gilmore made plays like back-to-back downs, like third and 11, I think, and fourth and nine. Gilmore made the play on both of them to stop it. I think it was Devontae Smith both times. Um, but Gilmore had a great game, and I think that was probably smart, matching him up on A.J. Brown instead of Deron Bland. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, Dan Quinn for Dallas deserves so much credit for what he's done the last couple of years defensively, just playing to his, like, adjusting to his defense, playing to his players' strengths, Remember, he came from the Seattle cover three and, you know, a lot of those disciples, Gus Bradley in particular, um, and Bradley's a good defensive coach, but they they run a lot of the same stuff, right? You play left corner, you play right corner, we play cover three, seam, the whole deal. And Dan Quinn all of a sudden starts stunting more than ever, you know, obviously saw enough that Micah Parsons should not be called a linebacker anymore and should be an edge rusher. He adjusted there. He adjusted pretty quickly early in Micah Parsons' career to that. Um, And even something like this. And they've also, as we've said, many times been incredible at forcing turnovers it's a three-year deal now for Dallas the thing that usually regresses and Dallas is incredible at it that's the other story of this game Dallas winning all the critical downs right nine of 16 on third down but also forcing three turnovers Um, Jalen Hurts fumble as they were driving 
Devontae Smith, fumble. A.J. Brown, fumble. Dallas recovers all of them. Um, all of those are just massive plays for Dallas. So I think Dan Quinn somehow emphasizing turnovers and still, you know, getting the message across to Dallas that, and still executing those, but also Quinn adjusting to his players. Outstanding work as defensive coordinator the last three years. And he'll be up for a head coaching job again, I think, because of the job he's done. Honestly, he could have been up for a head coaching job two years ago, and he kept sticking with it, sticking with it. And that's what I think, when you put that all together, makes Dallas dangerous, too, going forward, because the offense is cooking, and Dan Quinn, you know, making a lot of good moves on that side of the ball. Yeah, I mean, they still have the best pass rush in the game. They are pairing it with good coverage. The thing that I think makes him stand out relative to uh, a lot of those other Seattle cover three type of disciples is... That one of the things that characterizes that defense is relative inflexibility. They don't change much. They don't adjust. They yeah. line up and say, this is what we do. We're better than you. We're going to out-execute you. Whereas what we're talking about is his defense is almost characterized by a willingness to adjust and change things and adapt and you know alter what you want to do because it makes you better. Like Instead of putting Deron Bland one-on-one -on -one against A.J. Brown and knowing that he's going to get targeted 10 times a game – you put Gilmore on him and you say, Bland, you're going to get half the number of targets. You can be a little bit more risky. You can gamble a bit more and try and make a turnover against uh, Devontae Smith instead. And, you know, the, the stuff with Michael Parsons, all those kinds of things. Like, they have adapted this defense. I think it's why it's way more potent than it would be if they just stuck with what they were doing right away. As some people have pointed out in the chat, the uh... – and Chris as well. I mean, Dallas on turf with their speed. And, you know, they, when they lose, it's been grass games for whatever that's worth, the road games. And, I, and I, I do think Dallas is a different team at home. I mean, they're averaging – I just lost it. Almost still – they're just under 40 points a game at home, 39.9. Um, number one in the league in scoring offense or just points scored because that includes all your pick sixes and all that. But, um, but that's why I think this is important too. It's the cycle. I, I think both the psychological aspect of being able to beat one of the best teams in the league, but also playing at home, right? They still might have to go through San Francisco to get to the Super Bowl. But if they have to play Philly at home in the playoffs, I mean, they were favored in this game. We'll see what happens the next four weeks. They're favored again, right? I mean, Dallas this year in particular, I know they've looked good in a lot of stretches the last two years, but they look like they're destined for the NFC Championship if they keep this up. But playing at home, I think, is going to be huge for the Cowboys if they have that opportunity. So that part of it and the aspect of, hey, we beat a good team. Yeah. Because we haven't beaten the Niners or the Eagles with Jalen Hurts over the last couple of years. When the Eagles were playing at this level, when the Niners were playing at this level, this is the first one that maybe gets Dallas over the hump here. They still have to play detroit they have buffalo this week the schedule's uh, more challenging than uh, than philly down the stretch here so it might not matter in the end as far as seating goes but i thought it was it was important because they'll look unless dallas screws up they're going to see either philly or san francisco in the playoffs at some point at right. some point so they, i think this i think this is a big one for them yeah i mean i, I doubt i doubt they're going to want to play san francisco <laughs> just because nobody is um and, you know, as much, they might talk about it, trying to get, you know, get that one back or whatever, but they don't want to play San Francisco. But this was, again, like, they they are no longer, I think, going to have a psychological hang-up about playing Philadelphia if they meet them in the playoffs. They yeah. know they Even can Even in Philly. Them. I mean, that, that game came yeah. down to 
red zone execution, right? right? They, and they now had they a know. chance to win. They know they can beat them, and they can take out a team that's you know healthy and playing with um, all, almost all their consequential players. They know they can beat them. Like the 49ers might be a different proposition, but at least one of the best teams in the NFC, they know they can take down. The Eagles, you know, they've been playing with fire for a while. Remember that there was that stretch where Jalen Hurts had won five, six, seven straight games, whatever it was, when the Eagles were down 10 over the last two years. Well, they've been down 10 plus over the last two weeks and never made that comeback. So the Eagles being, you know, the worst 10 win team with the worst point differential for 10 win teams through week 14, there, are, there were these underlying metrics that said maybe the Eagles record is a little inflated. I really think they just look like they've run into so many good teams that they're spent here. But I think they'll, I think they'll bounce back. It'll still be a battle for uh, the NFC East down the stretch here. But huge win for Dallas and um, Eagles. I think some of their weaknesses came out too. Middle of their defense and when their pass rush doesn't get home, don't think they're as clean on the back end as they've been in recent years. I also think Dak is just really good against. Eagles like defenses. He I think that the same guys. way the Niners matchup is bad for Dallas. I think offensively, Dallas matches up well against the Eagles defense. He made some incredible throws again. I mean, Absolutely. Dak Prescott is playing spectacularly. He might not win MVP. He's the leader right now, man. I know Purdy's stats are insane, but people people are leaning into Dak as uh, MVP favorite right now. It'll be interesting when you get to this whole, well, they played each other head up and it was like night and day. Right. Purdy's best game versus Dak's worst game on Sunday night football. But Dak is in the mix for sure for MVP right now. Mm -hmm. All right, that's it. We got two games tonight. Monday night football, doubleheader. Enjoy that. And there is a Manning cast doing both games. Both Confirmed. games. Our, uh, ben lied to us. Yeah, Ben did lie to us. We have fact, we are our fact checkers got fact-checked, mm. and there will be a Manning cast tonight. So enjoy the doubleheader. You'll be back here tomorrow breaking it all down. Yep. All right, thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you again tomorrow with more PFF NFL Podcast.